Welcome to Looking for the Ocean, where we talk about everything Pixar has ever made and what it means to us. I'm Danny Vincent, and as always, I'm joined by Mark Young. And with us today is Sarah Kanoff and Scott... I don't know your last name. <laughs> Hello, Scott. Could, could you introduce yourself, Scott? <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm Scott Coventry. I'm Scottish, so I think perfect for this episode. And yeah, so just decided to... You invited me on the podcast to chat about my experiences with this obviously Scottish movie. And we're boyfriend and girlfriend. Oh, that yeah. too, yeah, I suppose. <laughs> Sarah is our first, uh, well, technically, Sarah was already our first returning guest because she came back for a special episode about Femtober. But Sarah is our first, also actual returning guest that didn't come back just for a bonus episode. Was I your first returning guest on your other podcast too? I'm unsure. You might have been. I'd have to open up the doc. I know Caleb though was like our most returning guest because <laughs> Caleb came back for like four or five episodes on the other podcast. Well, Scott, we've kind of talked a lot about this with Sarah in past episodes, but I wonder if you could talk a little, if you have a connection to Pixar movies or history with them that you'd like to share. Yeah, I mean, for me, I think like most kids, I assume, you know, I kind of grew up with Disney and Pixar. Certainly more of a Disney person. Pixar was was always there, you know. I mean, I think we always had the the Toy Story tape that we played in the car, and had all the Toy Story movies and other Pixar movies. And I, I've, what do you mean tape that you played in the car? It was it was I I can barely remember, but but it was like a, a like a audio tape. I can't remember what they're called. Cassette tape. That's that's the word for it. And it was I think I think all the songs and like the music, but I think it was also kind of like had the characters speaking. Because my brother loved um, Toy Story, and so we, you know, the, him being older, I was kind of indoctrinated into Toy Story, just by being younger than him. So it's always been kind of part of my life. Always like watching Pixar movies and then Disney movies, and yeah, as I you know grew up, you know, we watched all the Pixar movies kind of growing up. I don't think I missed one until you know later on in my life when I became a teenager, where I kind of stopped watching Pixar. Do you remember when that is? <laughs> you know what I mean? Cause it's, I sometimes it's... I struggle because I can't really remember like what is Disney and what is Pixar, what's Disney Pixar. I think it was I think it was like the Good Dinosaur. Okay. Was maybe the the Pixar movie that I didn't watch, and I think I'd seen most, if not all, before that. Well, that means you got off the train on Inside Out, which is a pretty decent. Oh, one. Oh, I, I, I didn't actually. I didn't see Inside Out actually. Oh. Uh, so maybe that was it. Again, I'm not then sure this the, is like on the, the dates, but. Well, yeah, because I saw this in the cinema, and I don't think I saw any others in the cinema except maybe Toy Story three. But I don't know again the date if that was before or after. This was, that was two years before this. Yeah, so around about that time, and then I, I probably caught maybe a few later, um, and especially with Disney Plus, I've like kind of caught up in a lot of uh, Disney movies. But yeah, I think as a teenager, I just kind of stopped going to the cinema as much and stopped watching movies as much. Um, so I kind of dropped off. Do you think it was like an age thing or like a vibes thing based on the movies? Or Might have been that. Might have been also kind of, as you say, with age and vibe when wanting to watch more adult movies and adult being MCU. <laughs> so I don't really know how, how much more adult, but that became larger in my life, superhero stuff. That's very interesting because I guarantee you I will come back to the MCU in this episode. I can personally promise you. I have an MCU thing I have to talk about here. And Mark's like, that's your old podcast, stop. (laughs) (laughs) So, like, now, as someone who maybe doesn't go see every Pixar movie, but you're aware of it, like, what do you think of when you hear about, like, the Pixar brand? I certainly think of, like, this 
almost juggernaut of the animation industry where they're always going to make something you know huge and extremely successful and extremely popular even if i don't see it like i'm I'm a nursery teacher and i never saw encanto but i heard every single song about a hundred times (laughs) that's not okay Uh, i'm sure i'd I'd hear whichever other pixar movie came out you know elemental do they have songs (laughs) uh coco does coco has songs coco i didn't really hear coco songs as much probably because they're in spanish also because they like make kids they make you cry (laughs) yes uh, i I have actually almost refused to watch coco because i know it's gonna make me cry so i've like held off because i don't want it to make me cry i think sarah didn't we see that movie together like three or four times i think it was definitely at least three it might have been four we like Coco. <laughs> but I also I also get why, like, it, it's a movie that does make you cry. Good. Yeah, you I, I, need cry, to, yeah I need to, like, <laughs> prepare myself. Uh... Scott, I gotta ask you what I ask all of our guests. Have you seen slash do you know it exists turning red? I do know it exists. I haven't seen it. Gotcha. Well, recommend it. It's just something we ask people to... <laughs> To just a survey that I do. I don't know. <laughs> we just talked about it one day, and our guest at the time like had no idea it existed, and it's just like exploring our little bubble as people who are like watching everything Pixar versus other people who just you know enjoy the movies. It's the or... only ever Pixar movie directed by a woman. It's it's what did you say? It's the only one besides this one. Well, the only yeah, other I one. Gonna, I was gonna say. I, yeah, I was, so it's really I the only one. Too. Let's Sorry. not forget <laughs> the man. <laughs> <laughs> I almost, I almost, Danny, maybe, and I guess now we can get into talking about the movie. Danny, I almost like messaged you like a screenshot of the opening credit that says directed by Mark Andrews with like, with Actually, like the caption we, oof. We can talk. I feel like that is so, we'll get into that maybe later, but I think talking about the animation guild is, would be very interesting here and how they don't like have the rules of the director's guild where like that would never be allowed what this movie does <laughs> interesting so here we are everybody and we have all come together i'm help, sarah did you Hello. have anything you wanted to say during our intro i'm sorry um what what can i say what am i allowed oh, I don't, to say? <laughs> oh i don't know i just was like we've I don't know. Is anything new going on? <laughs> well, I will say I have two things to say. First of all, Scott and I's second movie that we watched together as a couple was Ratatouille. The first one was Space Jam. <laughs> well, that's true. I remember Space Jam. I do not remember Ratatouille being our second. So, well, oh. it was. <laughs> Scott, was that a red flag that it was Space Jam for movie number one? <laughs> well, no, because like, I had never seen Space Jam. So I was like, oh, it'll be really cool to watch this movie that I've heard so much about. You know, you always hear about Space Jam. You were prepping for the new legacy. And obviously, yeah, new legacy. But I watched it and I was like, that's kind of, this is kind of ass. <laughs> it is kind of bad. <laughs> but like, I mean, it was still fun. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a common thing where you like sports people can't act. I'm actually not as big on this as like the internet is, but have either of you watched? And Mark, I guess you can be included in this question too. But back in action. Oh, I love back in action. Yeah, it's pretty good. I, I think it's good. I, I'm not in love with it, but it's. Good. I don't love it. I haven't seen it in a while, but like I would, I've watched that like probably fifty times, and when I was like ten or whatever, loved it. And that's the thing, like, I didn't know that it was a cancelled Space Jam sequel or, or a remade Space Jam sequel. Or I just ha- We just had the DVD. Don't know how. And Sarah, you were saying something else? Oh, yeah. My second thing. 
Do I do I reveal my hand? You can reveal it now if you want, and then we can talk about it more later. Because I I had you watch it for a re- or didn't have you watch it, but you know what I mean. You you chose to watch it. I did watch Turning Red. <gasps> nice. Oh, is that the update? I forget about the last time we all met. Well, what do you yeah. think? It was okay. It was like a three and a half to four star movie. I definitely did cry at the end. I feel like it's interesting that this movie and Turning Red are basically the exact same movie. But this is def I mean, Turning Red was definitely better than Brave. That's all I'm going to say. But yeah, it was pretty good. It was like, you know, I I don't know if I'm really the target audience of these things. However, I will say, again, I don't want to like make this too big of a discussion. But that whole thing about like the controversy with Turning Red and the specificity. And it's like, well, this movie about a white woman... Or a white girl and her mom really didn't do anything for me, but this one did, so I don't know. Yeah, well, I, I think there is something there that we can get into with Brave, because I, I wanted, one of the reasons I, I didn't I didn't make you watch it, but I did also make you watch it, because I was like, <laughs> I want you on, because I want to have the talking point of, like, the Pixar movie that's a woman got kicked off of versus the Pixar movie a woman actually got to finish making, you know? And I think that is a big part of talking about Brave. Or at least, mm-hmm. the fo- obviously, Turning Red didn't exist till last year, so it wasn't a big part of talking about, but I do think it's an interesting comparison point. That's all. So, we are all here to talk about Brave, which is Pixar's film, which came out in 2012 and was co-directed... Well, co- we'll talk about, like, you know, we know you'll know what we're talking about. It was, it's a big thing. Yeah, it, the story was by Brenda Chapman, who co-directed it, and the credits say... Directed by Mark Andrews, directed by Brenda Chapman, and then co-directed by the third guy whose name escapes me. Oh, it's Steve Purcell. It's Steve Purcell. So it's Steve Purcell. And then Brave, if you haven't watched it, because I hadn't watched it, but, you know, we're going to talk about it. And I want to give a summary of the movie, because we, like we didn't do for the very complicated John Carter. Brave, it's about a Scottish princess, and her mom and dad want her to get married to one of these guys from the tribes that they all rule over to preserve peace in the kingdom. But the princess Merida doesn't want to, so she runs away and she finds a witch, and she wants the witch to cast a spell on her mom, who she's especially at odds with, because her mom wants her to be all proper, because she wants her to be a princess. And the spell, in the form of a little sweet treat or something, is that her mom becomes a bear, and then the rest of the movie is... It's a, it's a, it's a blank blur because the movie immediately falls apart. Sorry. Sorry. Well, <laughs> I, <in> my hand. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, we can get into it. So he's a bear, they're trying to... There's, there's so get much the, lore like, that doesn't really matter. <laughs> they're trying to hide her. They run into another guy that became a bear. And I think, you know, a lot of the lore that doesn't matter, I think we'll talk about it. It's like, you can see that it's there, but it maybe it doesn't come out in the best ways. But like, they're trying to hide her from the other guys while trying to change her back. There's a bear and there's a clock. And at the very end, yeah, she changes back from a woman. All right, let me, let's get to the store concept. I'm sorry. I don't, I, I appreciate you giving the synopsis, but it's like, it's, People don't even know the ending. Bro, we'll John Carter it. is so complicated. John Carter is so complicated. I agree. Sometimes we need to give the whole plot. Listening to that, I'm like, I never want that to happen again. Brave. I, I think for the movies people have seen, we don't need to go through a full plot description. But it's okay. No one, I hadn't seen Brave. Well, that's. Your I don't know fault. if people know that her mom becomes a bear. The movie. <laughs> I don't know, man. The mom becomes a bear. That's pretty wild, right? Yeah. Anyway, it's mother bear. historical anyway, context. That was that was the joke at the time. Anyway. The important information is the historic context here, which is legitimately important in this movie. 
in a lot of ways. I'll get to the smaller stuff first before we get to the big one that we already alluded to. The movie's dedicated to Steve Jobs. is the first film to be released by Pixar after his death. It's the first Disney princess, and so far only Disney princess created by Pixar. The teaser was released with Cars 2, as always with Pixar. This had a new animation system, and more important, interesting to me, is that this is the first film to use Dolby Atmos ever. What's Dolby Atmos? Dolby Atmos is just the, if you go see a movie in Dolby, that's the sound. It's like the traveling sound system might be, if you if it's turned up all the way, it's going to shake your seat in the theater. The other interesting thing that is before, you know, the big elephant in the room, is this movie, I thought controversially won Best Anime Feature, but now I'm looking at the wiki, it says it won the Golden Globe and BAFTA beforehand. I thought that Wreck-It Ralph was a front runner in this season, initially, but I guess Brave just kind of ran the gauntlet. But I feel like at the time, before, like, the awards season actually began, everyone thought Wreck-It Ralph was going to actually take it all. Because it had, like, you know, like, a 70% on Rotten Tomatoes, 75%, whereas Wreck-It Ralph was more, like, 88 or 89 percent you know and it's just one of those things where wreck it ralph people were just pretty more positive too whereas even the people who were positive about brave were like it's good but it could be better you know whereas people who like yeah people who liked wreck it ralph were just like we like wreck it ralph but no this still won a lot of stuff and it did pretty well at the box office too it wasn't a bomb or anything but it, i do believe that it is part of cars to you know did more damage to the brand but i think brave being just a disney princess movie also helped damage the pixar and of course the fact it's followed up by monsters you is also like three kind of meddling movies in a row. But the elephant in the room here, which is imperative in discussing Brave, is the film was announced in 2008 as The Bear and the Bow, direct, to be directed by Brenda Chapman with a big press release saying this is a movie about a mother and a daughter. It's by our first female director. In October 2010, she is fired from the movie, making this the first movie where the picks. Okay. Someone got fired from Ratatouille as well, but this is the case where it's so publicly done and she put so much work into the movie, legally they have to still say directed by Brenda Chapman on it. And also, they still put the directed by Brenda Chapman on it because we don't want to say we fired the woman. We want to give the, you know what I mean? We want this to be our first woman-directed movie, even if we didn't let her finish the movie for the last two years. She was fired because of creative differences between her and our, our... Our, our man, who's the always the elephant in the room, John Lasseter. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, Mark Andrews finished the movie. He has yet to follow up this movie. Mark Andrews has always been said, like, oh, I have something in development at Pixar. I've heard that since, like, 2016 that he's been working on a movie at Pixar. I have the feeling it's in constant turnaround because he's not doing anything it seems like i'm I'm very confused on what he's doing because he's there he's never really getting like major credits on the new stuff other than senior story so it's like what are you doing what's going on back there but he's brad bird's right hand man (sighs) it says so on his wikipedia page i mean he wrote i didn't know he co-wrote john carter it also says he left pixar in 2018 did he that's interesting. I didn't hear that. My bad. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. No, I see this on Wikipedia. It says that he, in 2013, which, you know, would have been around Oscar season for, like, Oscar campaigning for Brave, I'm working on a new original film at Pixar, and then 2018 release. I didn't actually realize he left Pixar. My bad. Oh, it also looks like he has a TV show. Maybe. You know, we'll, we'll see. We'll see if we add this to the doc as a detour. Maybe. That's not <laughs> Arcane, is it? Because you've already shot down Arcane? It's a 10-episode miniseries that he did for Netflix. Well, Sarah, you said something kind of interesting earlier that you were not a super big fan of Brave, but Danny was kind of telling me about this before we came on, that, like, you are a Brave fan. 
You like it more than me. You, I remember I saw it with you in college at the, um, what do you call it? You know how they put all those Disney movies out again? I thought I saw it with you, and I was no, like... No, I don't think we saw it together. Movie. Oh, I thought we did. Maybe I'm the, mixing... The first time... Well, it could be... <laughs> it's gonna be awkward. It wasn't the first time. It wasn't the first time we saw Brave. <laughs> the first time that I saw it was in my boyfriend at the time's room my freshman year, and... Was that a red flag, Sarah? Well... <laughs> <laughs> There were a lot. There were a lot of red flags. She had the accents and was went. I want more of that. Um, but no, no, I don't like this movie. I think it's bad. (laughs) Oh, okay, Scott. What do you like this movie? Um, I certainly. You can be honest. I certainly remember liking it more, but rewatching it. I, I still enjoyed it, but there was parts of it where I was like, oh, okay. So it wasn't as good as I remember. I think I had did have rose tinted glasses when I was think when I thought about it, you know, leading up well, to it. It's it's good to hear this because I think this is by far the worst thing Pixar's put out movie feature length wise ever. I don't know about that. Maybe Cars Three is worse than this. I have this at a one star letterbox. It's staying there. I cannot abide by this film at all. And I'll get into why more, but I'm curious where Mark lands on it. I, I, I'm i okay giving general thoughts right now, you know? Like, a very general thought. Well, just, just to round things out, I also was not a fan watching it, but while watching it, I had the thought of, if I saw this when I was younger, and, I don't know, I think it's kind of hard to say this, because, like, if you're younger, do you understand the depth of that, like, mother-daughter relationship? Like, I don't know, I'm, I'm a boy-child... And maybe I'm not thinking about like transferable gender stuff like that. I don't know. I, I just think if you're if you're watching this as a young kid, I can definitely see you like going along with this movie and really really getting some great things out of it. And I think it's only because I'm watching it when I'm older that I'm like I don't know. This just doesn't like hold up together. I really think it's like you know maybe Phantom Menace comes out on top here, but. When you watch Phantom Menace as a kid, you're like, there's a race, there's a cool guy with a sword, and then there are times when I can, like, chill and play with Legos, and the connectivity is not super important, but I come away with a really positive memory. And, you know, even now I think, like, the politics stuff in Phantom Menace is kind of interesting, but... Oh, oh. sorry, but I thought that sentence was going, like, in a negative direction, so I was going to be like, oh, the racism, and you're going to be like, oh, the other Oh, well, no, 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 I mean, like, the racism, the racism is not cool, and it, you know, but just, like, I don't, like, what do you, they're blocking trade? Like, what do you mean? Like, I don't know, it's, it's actually kind of an, it's, it's interesting because it's structured, like, one of the new episodes of The Clone Wars is structured, where it's, like, kind of a very specific circumstance that and it's like the Naboo people and the Nemoidians like have this little conflict and then the rest of the galaxy gets involved that's kind of interesting versus New Hope where it's like always I mean not until the end but it's like kind of always a personal struggle they're always running around in the Millennium Falcon and it's kind of always their fight but you know the first movie is about this personal thing and then the Jedi get involved and then the scope really expands Whatever. I'm talking about how brave, like, if you watched it as a kid, I feel like you could come away with some very fond memories of this movie. Sarah, yes. you already said you saw this for the first time in, like, a dorm room, which is fine. Actually, I did, I did, re- I, it was such a, a hazy memory, but I do remember seeing it with you in theaters. Oh, okay, okay. But your first time was in the dorm room, yes. and you saw it with me in theaters. 
Uh, Scott, I think you said you saw this in the theater, right? Or did you not explain where you first saw this? Yeah, yeah. So I saw it, I saw it in the theater um, with a with a group of like my family and a, and another family. So it was certainly grander, you know. It's always I think films in the, in a cinema is always going to be better than at home, just because of the scale. That's why we hate Disney Plus here. <laughs> <laughs> Scott, you know I. I'm kind of curious, and the answer might just be, of course not, why would you think that? But is... Do, is <laughs> I mean, is, is, is it... Was, do you feel anything about that this is like a Scottish movie? And you're I, I mean, Scottish? I, I do. And I don't want to be like, you know, I understand why representation matters. Brave is my Black Panther. You know, I don't want to say that. Um, but like, it, it is nice to hear like Scottish accents in you know. Is movies. Emma Thompson doing a good one? Because I don't think she's not Scottish actually. No, no. Um, she she's she's doing an alright one. But like, I mean, they're very, I mean, obviously the big Ian uh, Billy Connolly's there, and he's always been great. Yeah. Um, and Craig Ferguson is there too. Yeah, Craig Ferguson was a surprise. I forgot about him. Bobby Coltrane's someone I can't remember. But it is it. There is something nice about it or comfortable about it because we don't really get that much. It's it's kind of like in Endgame, already bringing it to Marvel again. When or Infinity War rather, when it's um like Wanda and Vision in front of like a chip shop and it's talking about deep fried kebabs. And everyone in Scotland's like, yeah, that's us, that's us, and it's like it's like the smallest things, but we're like, that's yeah. So it's 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 a weird kind of mix, but I don't know if if you know this, but Brave was actually used by the National Tourism Board of Scotland, where a lot of the shots, the kind of sweeping shots of the the coastline and the mountains and stuff, were used and like for ads essentially. I don't know if it necessarily worked if hundreds of Americans kind of flocked over Outlander style, but it certainly mm. got a a place in Scotland, definitely a history. I just ask because I know that Ratatouille it made more money than Titanic, and Danny's going to be like, no, you're wrong, but like, I don't know, that's definitely a fact that I know, uh, even though it might be technically wrong. The... <laughs> But uh, I just I just know that that was a big deal, so I didn't I didn't want to. It's like, no, yeah, so yeah. you're Scottish, right, Scott? Can you like <laughs> talk about this? But like, yeah, I just I wondered if it was like a kind of an event or something. Yeah, I'm not sure if it was necessarily like you know it had the huge fanfare or whatever when it came out, but there was certainly pieces that I remember. You know, as I say the the tourism and that kind of latching onto it. You know, it's kind of like I'm sure if we had, I mean, we do have a national airline, but it's tiny. But if we had one like New Zealand, we'd have Brave plastered on it the same way they've got the Hobbit, you know? Like, I'm sure that... Because like, it's that or train spotting, you know? And what one do you want? Junkies or a ginger? So, it's... Yeah. So I think it's certainly... It's certainly got a connection where people will go, yeah, Brave. Brave's our movie kind of thing. Mark, so this was your first time watching it, right? Yeah, All right. I watched so it I got to tell you how I, I first watched it, which is... um This is what I, what I was alluding to earlier. What, Mark? 
Well, I don't know. I don't know. I thought you were like throwing it to me. <laughs> no, never mind. <laughs> I was throwing it to you to talk about the first time you watched it, but it was right now. Just what do you throw. have to say? Tell me. Tell me what you have to say. About, like, oh yeah, my experience watching Brave three hours ago was really a. <laughs> well, it wasn't actually three. I watched. I told you, and now I'll say it on on here is I watched it in a few chunks because I I was not really like able to stay with it. I mean, I gotta say, I don't know. It was just kind of like, well, I could keep going or I could like. Do another thing for a little bit. I don't know, and I think that's I don't know, that's just a significant part of the survey to ask. Like, how what was your like experience watching Brave on a phone? So yeah, I mean, it took me th- three chunks. So, but now, Danny, what All was right. what was your so, great uh, grand adventure with Brave? I think it's actually I think Scott would like about five minutes ago gave me what would have been a great like if I really wanted to be a jerk, cut him off and go. That reminds me of mine. So I'm just going to... Oh, that's why you threw it to me? (laughs) Well, well... You can interrupt me. To to deflect, uh... (laughs) Uh, Well, but... but, Scott, you said that, um, you know, movies are way better in the theater, which is, of course, something I agree with. Um, This is an interesting movie to me, because I have seen, you know, every Pixar movie besides Bug's Life in theaters. And the Bug's Life is because I was, like, two when that movie came out. Um, And I saw Toy Story 1 at a re-release, so that doesn't really count. But Brave, although I did see it in the theater... I saw it at the drive-in, and I remember distinctly because it was a rainy, stormy night, because it was Brave first, and then the Avengers, which is what I said, like, the MCU's gonna come up again here, because I watched it a doubleheader of Brave and the Avengers. And I think it was, like, my fourth or fifth time seeing the Avengers. I'm unsure. I'd have to look up how many times. I think it was the last time I saw the Avengers in theaters. You know what I mean? Like, because I kept going back, and I think this was, like, my, because I thought, I was like, I'm done with it, and I was, like, at the drive-in with Brave, and I was like, alright, I'll go do it. But the reason I remember it was storming is because, you know, when it's storming during the Avengers, you kind of crack jokes because Thor's in it. And I think also in retrospect, Mark, this might be why I didn't really like La Luna. As I didn't remember liking La Luna because my family had this attitude where if you saw a short at, like, the drive-in, you just didn't turn on your car radio. Because why would... I think I told you that in the Knickknack episode. Is like... Yeah. We did, we just did not turn up because it's like it's just music. You you can hear it out from the other cars. They're all blaring it loud enough. But I saw us at the drive-in, and we were all very disappointed with it. We all thought it was really boring. But I don't think I like hated hated. I was just like, eh, not for me. And then like I rewatched it with Sarah in college, and I was like, nah, I, I feel comfortable saying this one sucks. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and now I rewatched it again. And I'm like, this is still pretty bad. I actually think it, it feels notably worse having been on this journey for about a little over a year now, running through all these. I think there's a very jarring shift between this and the last Pixar original we talked about, Up, which is a movie, mm. you know, Mark isn't too big on. But also, I think this is very clearly, even if you're not big on Up, I think this is clearly a step below in a lot of ways. <laughs> so what made you return to it in college? They did a re-release, and it was like, you know, I, I never seen this movie in an actual theater. I only saw it at the drive-in, so maybe seeing, like, in a theater, like, a theater theater will make it better. And it didn't. <laughs> it didn't make La Luna a bit better, but it did not make Brave better. It was the Disney princess celebration. Like, each week had a different princess movie. Wasn't it, like, to build up to Moana, I feel like? I feel like that was it. I don't think so. I think it was just... Because it was in, like, Oct- well, it was in, like, October, so... So it would have been. It could have been about Tamoana. Wait, I don't think it was just Disney princesses, or maybe they did. Cause that summer I went with my mom to Lion King. Cause they did a Lion King one as well. But maybe it was like Lion King was before all the princess ones. I think it was because I remember it was like princess. Cause it was like Beauty and the Beast, which we saw. Cause Caleb had never seen it somehow. <laughs> yeah, and you kept you kept laughing at that Lefou line. 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then I don't know. Ah, well, we... guess it's not gonna work out after all. You remember that, Mark? Do you remember that, Scott? What line? So in Viewing the Beast, there's a moment where it cuts back to Gaston LeFou, and they're, like, barging into Belle's house to, like, or I think it's, like, yeah, yeah, they barge into Belle's house to take Maurice away, and then it's, like, is Belle home? No, it looks like, no, 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 Maurice has already gone to look for Belle, so it's just empty, and LeFou just goes, oh, well, we check, because it's not going to work out after all, and he just tries to walk out. It is pretty funny. It's really funny, and I never noticed it before. It's because it's it's one of those things where it's just you're processing information like as a child, and you're like, okay, I guess they're not there. It's a scene like it's literally a filler scene, right? It's a filler scene, just like here's why Gaston Lefou are on the plot. Uh, it's not a filler. It's like a check in on them, see what's going on, give them an excuse to like stop, you know, like pause their storyline for a bit. That's why that scene is there. <laughs> Lefou just going like, all right, let's get like that. We die. <laughs> it's so funny to me. Anyway, yeah, you're right. I did get really obsessed over that line. Yeah. And then I don't know if we saw, like... I think that... I went to Mulan. I think I went to Mulan. I don't know if I, I went with you, think... but I know yeah. I, I went to Mulan. I don't think I saw any of the other ones. I think I wanted to see Little Mermaid, but people don't like that movie, I guess. Well, I actually went to the... I don't think they did Little Mermaid, because I think they did... Because they did Little Mermaid when I came back from TIFF here, and I made a big priority out of seeing it, because I didn't think they offered it the last time. Because they did it... They've done it twice. They did it, like, in 2019, they did it whenever we did it. I think 2018 must have been for Frozen 2, I guess, now that I'm thinking about it, but anyway. I know, we, yeah, I know we've kept people in suspense, but who do you have, like, the strongest negative takes about Brave, and you want to drop them now, Danny? I will say right now, I will give you my very particular one that I thought, well, okay, this is the very, there's two. One is the very obvious thing. This movie is solid and good until the mom turns into the bear, then it throws away the main relationship it's been setting out for, like, poorly done slapstick, but... Moreover, that slapstick is present from the beginning. I pause it, and I recognize the way I'm about to label it is lazy, but it is how people label it, like, everywhere. That in the build-up to Pixar, to this point, and I'm counting Cars, maybe not Cars 2, because Cars 2 is a movie that's so bad that I find it entertaining. We've, we've covered <laughs> that. We did a whole episode on it. But even the original Cars, I think this is by far the Pixar movie that has... The first, like, it feels like DreamWorks humor to me. Like, people people would label DreamWorks humor. It's constantly cutting, undercutting these scenes with bad jokes, which makes the only scenes I really like in this movie. Because I can tell you exactly, there's two minutes of this movie I love. And that is the first song, which I believe is Touch the Sky, which is, like, a really mm-hmm. nice montage of Merida, like, just doing her thing. And I'm like, this is such a good vibe piece. And then, you know, it's not even that Merida starts talking or her mom starts talking. It's that everyone else does. And we have, like, these characters with these stock, goofy character models. And I was talking to a co-worker about this earlier today who was like, how can you hate Brave? How can you? And I, I can single you everything wrong with the humor in that movie to me. And it's that in the scene where they need to get pivotal exposition about, like, the mom, instead of just having, like, the witch teller at the time, we have to have it wait so that way she can go through a very generic joke where it's like, if you'd like to learn about this, put in this vial. If you'd like to put in this, put in this vial. Please hang up and try it. I just, like... I hate the sense of humor in this movie. And it bothers me too, because, and we have a whole episode on our calendar. We've been mentioning it on and off for the entire run of this podcast. That's so going to be about the Pixar teaser trailers that are completely comprised of original footage. The original footage of this movie promised something dark and serious. This is like, not, like, this is, this is a fairy tale. 
with a couple of like emotional moments between the mom and Merida, but it all just like hits the predetermined marks. And again, they're all undercut by gags. Like I also hate the brothers. The brothers are <laughs> the fact that they're silent characters that are just freaking minions. Two years after this Vicful Me came out. And I know, I know we weren't fully in like minion t- ripoff territory in 2012. I'm aware that's not how the week time works. But everything about the humor in this movie completely sucks me out of it. I think about the, the suitors, right? I think about the suitor gags. They're all stock gags. Like, you know, like, here's my son. He, uh, I'm not going to do the accent. I feel like it'd be offensive with Scott here. Uh, <laughs> Say it will. But <laughs> here's my son. He's. He slayed so many people, and there's like this ridiculously buff guy there. Oh, never mind, it's this mouth breather kid. But it's all stock gags, and you know, of course, as soon as that scene where it's like, this is what I'm talking about, it's like, the movie's already mediocre before the mob turns into a bear, it's when the mob turns into a bear, it completely loses me. It's like, you know, you know in that scene, everything about this is so predictable, and it's not like Coco, where it's like, the reveals feel like, no, don't change it. Like that—that that is the organic way of the story. It's just like, of course, it's going to be the one that the least desirable person who accidentally shoots it perfectly. It's just so dull to me. And everything here had been done tons of times before. With the only interesting angle of it was fired two years before the movie came out, which is let's give one of these movies to a woman. And. All the stuff that is wrong about it to me, because I read on Wikipedia, the main thing was, oh, I was focusing on that mother-daughter relationship, which, you know, is totally spin. I know we can't assign thing to it, because everything here where it's, like, so goofy, that feels to me like that was executive mandated. Nothing about it ever feels right, with maybe the exception of Billy Connolly, because he's the wacky dad. But even he feels like a sitcom TV dad. He's like Homer Simpson here. I just find it so frustrating. I like him, though. I mean, I don't know. I just like him as a voice performance, but that's I not mean, really. I think he's, I'm, again, I'm saying he's fine. Like I'm, I was listening as a good aspect of the movie, though he too is generic. There are good aspects of the movie. The one thing I was also just gonna say that's really positive on it is this was the first time I've ever watched it. It might be because I was at home instead of like on a big movie screen or at the drive-in that I finally understood. Like I remember there was like reviewers at the time saying, "If you get bored during this movie, just watch Meredith's hair. It's always going to be fascinating." And you know, there was a lot of times this watch I did watch her hair, and you know what? I loved watching her hair. Her hair is really cool. Mm. So, I'll give the movie her hair. <laughs> I'll give the movie her hair. That's not the gift hair. I'm giving it at the end of the episode, but I'm like, the hair is good. Scott, did you have a reaction to the, the, ki- the kids that... Um, I, thought, I, mean, I, I thought I heard that wick something in you. For the, the kids, like, I hated them as humans, but as soon as they were bears, they were cute. Like, the way they just kind of waddle up or whatever. But when they were humans, I, I did not care for them at all. I, I okay, I, I hear you. I understand. The jokes do work better when they're bears. That said, I hate when they become bears, and you know, this big climax is built around the emotional angle of, will, will we be able to turn mom back? But no concern is given to the brothers. The brothers <laughs> yeah. are just standing there while she fully turns into a bear going, oh, we're sad. It's like, what do you mean you're sad? You're going to turn into this too. You should be panicking right they now. They just assume that if it does work, it's going to work with them. And like, for a movie that's so in love with its lore drops, it, the rules make no sense to me. And I know, I know people hate when I just get on rule tangents. This movie, I hate it. I'm sorry. It's really bad to well, me. <laughs> I, think, I think we can all agree. I mean, maybe, but it seems like this movie really does have a problem with its rules. Like, there's that ancient legend about the princes who fought over the kingdom before it is the way it was now, but one of them is still alive as a bear. 
and he's just been chilling in this cave with nothing to eat? Like, can the bears also not die when they become bears? And there's also, like, in the end, is it really that they fixed the fabric by sewing it together, or did they fix it because of the mother-daughter love? I don't know. I feel like that wasn't super clear, and something like Finding Nemo, that moment happens, but I feel like, you know, the, the rules of the world don't hinge on how Marlin and Nemo reconcile at the end. Like, you need it to be there, but because it's not, like, the thing that saves their lives, it doesn't have to be a certain way. It can, it can just be, like, a real emotional moment. Whereas this, I felt more like, well, I want there to be, like, some rule. Like, does she say, like, I love you, and then a bell goes ding, and then she turns back <laughs> into a bear? I don't know. I mean, that would be very silly. The, the bigger issue to me than even the rules is just how much of a tonal mess this movie is. Because all the stuff with the rival clams is played so slapstick and broad. And then you cut back to Eleanor Merida, and it's like, oh, how does succession work? How does... You need to be able to, like... You're not allowed to fight for your own hand in marriage. And it's all so serious. But then we cut back to the people she's, like, arguing over. And they're all just jokes. So it's like, it'd be better if they're, like, realistic. <laughs> not, like, not like a realistic douchebag. But you know what I mean. Like, not all of them being, like... I will say, though, outside... I actually do like the character design on the suitors. Because I think it's interesting that they do all look, like, simultaneously you know, old enough to be a suitor, but they still look like teenagers. And I think that's actually a weird thing to try to balance in this type of animation. I do like their character design, but I'm just bothered by their characterization. I have to ask Scott, and I guess this could be open to everyone, but Scott, I'm curious, is the stereotype of like the Scott no one can understand, is that like actually a thing in Scotland? <laughs> or is, because I feel like you guys... This is my, I don't want to be like yeah go ahead sorry I don't that's want to actually something like very it. interesting I was I was kind of surprised because I watched it with subtitles I watch everything with subtitles and I was surprised that he didn't have subtitles because it's not that he's unintelligible he's actually speaking Doric which is a type of Scots dialect that is specifically used like up north so it's it is a it is a Scottish dialect that gets used and it's it's quite different from normal Scots like the whole I help my bob kind of stuff but and so it's kind of kind of interesting that they did use it and it's kind of the first time it was used in Hollywood and there's this big campaign to try and get it into the forefront more which is which is all very very, very good so it's not necessarily that it's just an unintelligible mess because I could actually translate it roughly uh, and like understand it so it's kind of a stereotype where it's like oh this guy's unintelligible but it's also not just gibberish it is actually words just in another scots dialect essentially so it's hmm. kind of interesting does it read kind of weird if it's like well why can't they understand him when he's he's clearly just from somewhere else um no because like that's the thing it's like well maybe back then obviously in 1300 AD or whenever this, this movie's set, they might have. Um, it's kind of weird because Dingwall is up north, uh, which is a real place. So it might be a bit strange, but again, like, I bet most people in, like, Glasgow couldn't understand the Doric, you know? Just naturally, because it is quite different. Uh, so it's... Yes, I know, it just, it just depends. So it's kind of played as a joke, but also because it's not fully gibberish it's like it gets a pass if that makes sense 
interesting. I mean, I I one hundred percent kind of agree with the whole comedy thing. It is certainly like some of the darker or more sincere moments are kind of undermined by this joke, and the whole witch thing just feels like they had to write her out. And then they're like, well, how do we explain where she is? We'll do a cold wound. <laughs> that got me... I promise that part of it. That got me mad too, being like, I'm at a convention or something yeah, like that. Yeah, she's like, at the Wicker so... Man Festival in like, uh, I don't know, Inverness or, or somewhere. Um, or Stoneaway, I think it is, that she says. It's like, yeah, like, okay, but it does feel like, yeah, we just kind of moved her out of it. My biggest thing was though, I, I forgot how fast it moves once she turns into a bear. I, like obviously there's a whole wholesome scene of them fishing and and stuff, but then her mum obviously like almost turns into a real bear, you know. And it's like I I thought that happened way later into the movie, so I was like really surprised that I don't even know if it was halfway through the movie that it's already like oh no she's gonna turn into a real bear. So I found that quite interesting. That I'm like I I just thought that was I thought there was more build up, but there really wasn't. I think for me, I was texting Mark this. I was like, this is one of the longest 90-minute movies I ever have to watch. And the reason I say that is not... It's because it's not because it doesn't move fast. Because I, I agree with you that like once she turns into a bear, the plot mechanics actually do move pretty quickly through it all. It feels even a bit rushed. It's just that by that point, I'm so uninvested in it. Where it's like, here we have a big action scene between... A random, like, I mean, it's not random, it's, she's, he's been set up already, but, like, more due to me as a concept feels like he's just there so they can have action scenes. I don't, I don't see what the point, I, I honestly giggled at the end of the movie when, like, they killed Mordu and, like, his soul was really, because I was like, this had nothing, I was like, this really doesn't mean anything to these characters, right? Like, who cares about Mordu? Sarah. Yes. Do you have, what are, what are your thoughts on this movie? Well, first of all, I like the brothers. Even though I don't usually like kids, I thought that they were cute. They were kind of creepy, but <laughs> I thought they were okay. Um, I don't know. I feel like with the whole like mend the bond thing, I feel like in any other movie that would be like the first thing that they would do. Like she would be like, "Let's mend the bond," and then she does it, and then she's like, "Oh no, it didn't work." Like I feel like that's like the first step, and it just feels like. Okay, like that was that was a, such a simple solution, I guess. Yeah, it's it a just very feels literal like, understanding. Yeah, I mean, obviously, like they do mend the, the emotional bond, like whatever. But like, it does kind of muddle the message a little bit. Or even like, I don't know, even like she doesn't want to do her lessons and she hates being a woman. Well, then, well, this never mind. This wouldn't be a good, <laughs> this wouldn't be a good <laughs> lesson. Like she can sell perfectly. She's a perfect woman. Like <laughs> maybe not something like that, but. You know, like she listened to her mom in this situation or something to that effect. It's so funny you mentioned that. Like, isn't this movie so symbolically rich, but it's kind of hard to know what it all means? I was reading an interview with Brenda Chapman before coming on here where she says that in an early draft, the bear transformation was significant because it was like Merida wanting her mom to be more like her dad because he was so outgoing and in some ways bear-like. And it just seems like it's not connected enough, or def- definitely I I felt that there was a kind of issue with the pacing of the plot elements where it is it is like, yeah, like, if you're going to do this basic thing that we all know, why don't you just do the other basic thing, which is have them fail initially. Right. I I feel like this is a two-act movie, and I think, it's a, I think it's 100% because of the changing of hands. I think that once she becomes a bear, that becomes, like 
the start of the climax. I feel like there's not really anything that they can do with her. I feel like they realized once you make a movie about a mom and daughter bonding, but the mom can't have any conversation with her. It just it just goes out the window. I feel like the, the montages were weird. It felt like she was falling in love with her mom. Um, <laughs> so I don't know. I just it feels like a two act movie to me. It definitely feels like this is the first part, and then this is the second part, and there's not really any sort of resolution beyond that. It just feels like. It's just, it's very bare bones in the end. Do we feel like production-wise, though, it is a step forward? Because I kind of got some Shrek vibes, and I do, it's not just because of, like, the location and the sound of everything. It just kind of felt like, <laughs> oh, medieval technology has not, like, increased greatly in 11 years. Or just, like, the look of these things. I don't know. I, I felt like it looked kind of like an older movie, except for Meredith's hair and all that. It, it, there wasn't anything big that was like this is proof that this is the next step in animation or whatever it did like even about the whole Dolby thing being the first Dolby movie or the first Disney Pixar movie like there's nothing really telling I was gonna say the Dolby thing is Dolby Atmos to be clear and Dolby Atmos is just the sound system so you're saying it wouldn't really it you kind of need like the multiple channel speaker system in the theater to make that all work yeah which is kind of what I was like it's kind of funny it had this when I uh, you know saw it at the drive in my shitty car t- radio bro Tangled came out two years earlier I cannot believe that. That I can't, is kind like... of shocking, actually. Even though Tangle is the hair movie, I feel like when we talk about like hair in animated movies, I feel like Brave is like... I guess that's the only thing that we can really give Brave credit for, <laughs> is that it is like the hair movie. I don't think it is anymore, personally. Well, I'm just kind of surprised that it, like I figured like they, they, they made this technology. I mean, obviously, I know in my head and in my heart that Brave came out afterwards, but I just feel like, I don't know, it feels like it should be the opposite. It feels like they should have used the hair technology in Tangled. Disney, Disney and Pixar don't use the same tech necessarily, too, is a thing. It's like, even if like Disney had something for Tangled, they would have been like, no, we're making our own. And I also think that Merida's hair requires something different than like, because, you know, she usually, um, she, Rapunzel usually has her um, hair in like a braid. Or if it is super long, it's just, like, a long thing. It's not like Merida's where it's constantly, like, frizzing all over the place. Yeah, it's one animation lump. Exactly. Like, it's still... You wouldn't be able to really do it that well in, like, traditional animation Rapunzel's hair. But it, you, there's no way you could do, like, Merida's hair in traditional animation unless you, like, did something where it's like, we're gonna color it on with crayon type of thing. You know, like, something goofy like that. But... I was going to say about the animation quality is that uh, this might actually be one of my hotter negative takes is uh, I actually I've always clocked this and I clocked it on my watch last night. I really don't like how this movie looks besides her hair. And I think what my issue is, and this is how I would clock it, is I think the textures are too detailed. And maybe this is like one of those things where it's like, yeah, that doesn't make any sense. But to me, it's constantly like... Like, the rocks are so detailed, and then we have her incredibly detailed outfits moving over them, and it just feels too crisp to me, if that makes sense. And I generally think it looks ugly. This might be, like, a weirdo take. Maybe. Yeah, they did, they did seem to kind of focus on the landscaping a lot. 
which is obviously why the tourist board used it or whatever. But like, yeah, it was like there was these big sweeping mountains and things, but then the castles just got this grey blob, which castles kind of are, but still. Like, it's not even like, to me, it's like the movement. And it's even like when the camera moves through it, right? It's it's just, these are so hyper detailed that it's like, oh, I'm looking at like how like textured that wall is. And it's like... And then, like, the fire is on it, so it's, like, it's it just feels, I don't know, this this might be one of those, like, the problem with Brave is that it looks too good. But I even think that, like, later ones, like, <laughs> the good dino, which I don't even like, I think that does this, like, thing better where it's, like, it's not as hyper... I think Soul has this issue sometimes, too, to be clear. I don't think it's exclusive to Brave. I think I've had this issue sometimes during Soul, where it's, like, I don't know why we felt the need to, like put so much texture onto everything in this movie. And you guys are going to be like, uh, whatever, Danny, I didn't have an issue with it, which is fine. <laughs> well, I feel like I need to make a, po- I, mean, I need to make a point that I've been thinking for a while now. When we were watching it, I was like joking, like, oh, this is a ripoff of How to Train Your Dragon. It has Craig Ferguson in it. <laughs> Craig Ferguson like, didn't make it too, though. <laughs> like, just like the character designs and stuff. And I think it's interesting because like, like you had mentioned before, like the humor is not what you would expect from a Pixar movie. It feels like a DreamWorks movie. And I'm wondering if like How to Train Your Dragon has jokes. Like it's it it has those goofy jokes, but I'm wondering if because there's that emotional side to it, that's what makes it an exceptional an exceptional DreamWorks movie. And like the animation in How to Train Your Dragon as well is very detailed. Like there's freckles and there's scales and stuff like that. But the character designs are kind of ugly. And it's like I feel like this, I do kind of feel like Brave is like all universe How to Train Your Dragon in a way, where it's like the bad version. <laughs> I was going to be like, well, let me introduce you to this wonderful website called fanfiction.net. And let's look oh, up the I forgot Sun about that! Fanfiction. With, with Tangled too! And Jeff Ross staring at <laughs> Yeah, did, did, did Merida get, like, shipped with hip-hop or anything? Surely she must have, yeah. Because yeah. I, knew, I knew it was Jack Frost and Elsa, but I don't know anything else about that. There was a time where I was very into How to Train Your Dragon fanfiction. And very, it wasn't a long a lot of time. It was, like, in between one and two, okay? Like, that, that little span of time. Which, granted, is, like, four years. And let me tell you, nothing made me X out something more than just Merida popping out of <laughs> aware of the story i'd be like all right well she she doesn't belong here i can kind of see what you mean with regards to the because i haven't actually seen how to train your dragon yet even though i would like to i get what you mean like in regards to the animation quality it does kind of have that like i don't know like the original resident evil game if that is resonant to anyone like how on a flat surface you can make these things that are so grimy and especially because it's it's like the browns and the reds and things like that it looks like oh man that is dirty and rocky and i was kind of getting that here because it feels like and of course actual castles are like this a lot of these locations feel very empty especially when they're like in the bowels of the catacombs or something like that and it's not like Beauty and the Beast isn't set in a castle town, but of course, like, you know, you know when when people are running by people, you can imagine a character like Maud, like, oh, she's like flying off the stairs and these people are running through the middle of the frame. But then there's like the top of the frame is these people looking down from a landing and stuff like that. 
And the whole movie, a lot of the movie to me felt like, uh, especially in that scene where they go back and she's a bear and they have to sneak upstairs. It's like these walls are flat and these guys are just in a room. And it's crazy because it's a battle sequence and you would love to like see the battle sequence, not just in the tables, but like, have they torn down a tapestry? Have they, like, broken a window and the window is, like, lying in the middle here? Like, I don't know. It's kind of a joke, but I kind of wish the... What if they tore down the tapestry and that's, like, the... See, now that you mentioned that about it being, like, empty... Ignored. I was thinking about that exact exact scene. Yeah, I'm not even going to think of a sequel for Brave. Um, But it does... does, (laughs) Brave would be a good title, actually. Uh, Brave 2, even braver. It did feel empty. It did feel very empty, even though like all three or all four of the clans are meant to be in there, and they did have upturned tables and stuff. But as soon as it focused on Merida talking, that kind of all went away, and it really only focused on her and the characters that spoke. There was nothing of the background characters until the one guy with the spear was, like, poking around or whatever. Oh, well, which which I really don't feel like... That's not actually how I feel about the first 15, 20 minutes of the movie, especially around, like, the 15, 20-minute mark, where there are all these foreground background jokes. And yeah. you do see, like, townspeople interacting with each other. I don't know if they're townspeople or not. I think the archery scene is fine in this regard. I know that's outside, but I think the archery scene is fine and, like, feeling like it's a decent crowd, but it's also, like, you know, these are small clans in, you know, it's, like, they. I think that's fine, but I would agree with you that, you know, at the end, it's, like, Merida's making her big speech. It's, like, this is, like, again, it's one of those things where it's a problem with tone. It's, like, oh, all the clans are fighting each other, but don't worry. It's goofy, kids. Don't worry. This isn't this isn't anything that bad, but then Merida's, like, oh, I have to stop this, and... I would agree that whole thing feels empty because also it's all in one big banquet hall. It's like all these people that were outside and looked so grand, now they're all in one banquet hall. Well, e- even when they're in the banquet hall at the start and the tribes, or the clans are introducing each other, it still feels a bit fuller. I think because, I don't necessarily know if, but like the camera angles is showing the entire clans while in the, after, when Merida's talking after the fight scene or whatever later on, it really only focuses on the chief the chieftain and like the son mm-hmm. rather than you know seeing just background characters being lined up you know yeah yeah so it's just it it, it, it creates this kind of it is weird because it's the same exact room that it was in but it's so much more empty yeah we talk about this a lot with like some of the pixar shorts we watch i mean or i talk about this a lot i feel like i notice empty space a lot in some of the things that maybe couldn't have as much care put into them because they were released for TV or whatever. We've been talking a lot about Cars shorts and how in the original Cars, the camera is moving so often and the movement feels so motivated and it doesn't feel like it's just kind of parked staring at someone and there's all this empty space around them, but it really feels that way in the shorts. And I, I don't know, it's it's one of those things we can't really, you know, figure out, but I wonder if it's because in the, like, the limited time you have, do you just, like, stick somebody in front of the camera? Like, you just stick one of the funny side clan leaders in front of the camera and just like, all right, let them go nuts. And But yeah, 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 it's just, I'm not sure why, but it's there. I want to jump back to something Sarah said about how to train your dragon. It's like, I don't know what the difference is there and here. I think there's two very big differences here and there, which is that those movies focus on maybe two human characters at a time, right? Like Hiccup and Astrid, Hiccup and his dad, 
maybe Hiccup and Gobber, right? Like, the other characters are there to make jokes, but it's not like this where we cut over to the other clan leaders and they each have to say something. It's kind of actually, it made me think about your Christmas from Toy Story 3, Mark, where you're like, every time they make a joke, we have to cut back and have every single toy say something. That's what I feel like with these clan leaders. Every time there's a joke, we have to cut back and hear something from all of them and all, all the sons. And it's like, this is, or, or we have to, you know, we have to see something from everyone. I always said this very briefly. I hate Maude in this. I hate Maudie. She's such a stock, boring character. And we always cut back to her being annoyed by the boys whenever the boys do something wacky. And I'm like, I'm, I'm tired of this. I'm so frustrated by us cutting back to her. But... I think the other key difference, which is more what I want to talk about with Power Train Dragon compared to this, is both movies feature, for a bit, large portion of it, a silent character who is meant to be animated in a way that we're endeared to them and we're emotionally connected to them. And Toothless is one of the great CGI animated characters. Like, his animation is always, like, intuitive, fun, exciting, makes you want to have, like, makes you want to meet Toothless. The counterpoint here is Eleanor as a bear, where I get, I am so interested by that plot turn, but then what it really just serves for most of it, other than when she's like, darkly turning into like, an actual bear mentally, is, oh, she can't talk anymore, and she's a bit bigger. And I find the, I'm thinking very specifically, this is a moment where I rolled my eyes, because I just felt like it was such an easy way to do it, is when Merida like, is giving her big speech, she's like, I'm gonna do the, I, I will do it, uh, I, I will pick someone to take my hand. And we pan over to, or we cut over to mom, and mom is just doing, like, a charades, like, cut it out type of thing. And I'm just so frustrated by that. There was not another way to, like, animate her, in a, like, to be more like a bear, but still, like, be able to do that. And I understand you want to have this, like, dark plot where, like, oh, she's losing herself to the bear. But surely there's a way to do it in a way that made her actually interestingly animated rather than just being basically a giant that growls sometimes yeah because like talking talking about like toothless i've only seen the first one but one thing about him is obviously he's got a big mouth and big eyes and it allows himself allows the face to be so expressive where you can tell you know whether he's angry sad laughing whatever obviously him being toothless um as as you know it shows his emotions his mood and kind of kind of how he's communicating while when in um her mum's a bear it's kind of limited by the bear's face being realistic and if you compare it to like brother bear which is another film it's kind of similar to that had the more kind of cartoony eyes cartoony mouth cartoony everything which allowed it to be more expressive than just you know a real bear's face i think that even within the movie itself this movie the crow functions more as like a reasonable cgi animal where even though the crow has lines mm-hmm. he has those giant eyes he can kind of give you a look he can kind of like arch his eyes he's not in a lot i'm not saying the crow is the best part of the movie the crow is fine it's whatever it's but i'm just saying like where where was those eyes on the bear where was where was that character design for the bears in this movie because i don't feel like they're cohesively yeah. in the same word world that crow and the bears but I would also, yeah, yeah, agree. Or even, like, I'm thinking, like, in other, like, animated movies, CGI anime movies, right? Like, the we brought it up two years prior. The horse entangled. The chameleon entangled. Those both are so much more expressive. 
And Mark's giving me a smile for some reason. <laughs> I'm off in my own world. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. <laughs> you just think about that cool. No, but I'm thinking like about something dumb. <laughs> but I actually think, I think Maximus the horse is a really great example because Maximus never talks. And yet you always know what yeah. he's doing. Again, though, it's a bit more of a cartoony world. It's a, you can do a bit more goofy stuff with Maximus. But like... These bear, and I think Mordu also qualifies here for this too. Even though Mordu isn't as important as the mom as a bear, these bears are like they're they're bears. It's like you, there's a, there's it's one of those things where you know you talk about like the CGI Lion King remake, right? Where it's like why aren't these more expressive? And this is like a movie where it's like it's a Pixar movie, and they somehow don't know that this is important, and it's very bothersome. <laughs> Yeah, and it's not as if, like, Pixar, like, you can't say, oh, Rapunzel was a Disney movie, so it's more animated or whatever, and it's more the dog's fantastic. Dug. That's where they've got large eyes. But, yeah, exactly, Pixar has Doug or Ratatouille, where it, it's not as if they're like, yeah, we, we care about realism here, you know? They're, yeah. they're, they're, they're not known for that, so why do it in this one? They could have made both bears have more bigger eyes or whatever. Nobody would nobody would care. Nobody would go, well, bears don't look like that. It's like, it's a Pixar movie, you know? Yeah, and imagine imagine how many more toys you could sell if the, if the baby bears had giant eyeballs. That's true. Yeah, I mean, the baby bears, again, were cute. I like them. I, I would say with Mordu... I think Mordu, he didn't need to necessarily be expressive. I think the mum definitely should have. He didn't need to be because he was just evil. He was just yeah, meant sure. to be scary. And I will say that worked because the family that we went to go see it with had a young kid who was about, I would say maybe about seven or whatever, terrified of Mordu. Absolutely scared, hiding behind the seats. So I'm like, maybe they did a good job. Would it have been better <laughs> if instead of just having like her irises go black, if her eyes actually like change shape? Right when she turns into like... I was thinking like, that, right? yeah. Like... Like, she goes realistic when she's in bear form or, or in bear form and, I don't know, when she becomes a bear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that would work so much better. I also, though, I do want to say, because I, I feel like I need to give this movie a credit. I do like that whole thing where it's like, oh, she's giving into her instinct because I think that is a really interesting, like, plot idea that is very relevant in fantasy when, like, people turn to animals, but it's not really ever in, like, animated kids' movies or even, like in fantasy movies in general. So I, I, I do like that portion mm. of the movie. I wanted to give the movie credit to that, even as someone who's like, I hate when the mom turns into a bear. It ruins the entire movie. I like that <laughs> idea. Because I do think it's an interesting Yeah, thing. agreed. And it adds a lot to the stakes. And speaking of effective bears, I think that in the first scene, whatever bear that is, they fight. Uh, you know, all the guys fight the bear that it comes to their picnic. I think that's a really terrifying bear. I love the shot that's kind of a profile shot of the guys turning to face the bear and you see the full height of him and it's just like, yeah. oh, I love artists and how they convey scale. Isn't it's that just supposed really to be more fun. do? Or am I confused? It uh, uh, yeah, as uh, uh, more do. Okay. Which also kind of comes into question, how old is more do? Is more do immortal? Because that's at least 10 years. But they crash him. Since the start of the, start of the movie until... The, they you know, the actual plot. <laughs> then he so goes like, like I had not ten years. <laughs> I just think that's yeah, so I, funny. That the I, yeah, they, he's like, all right, I, bye. He's like, thanks. <laughs> yeah, I know. So it's like, oh, he's good now. It's like, what? <laughs> so, hey, I'm a power hungry warlord, but I'm dead. Nice, good to see. You. <laughs> 
Yeah, another thing that's maybe not the best executed, or you could have done it a different way, but I I don't know. I think that's kind of interesting that he, like, became good. Like, he finished <laughs> he his... He become good. He Eve. dies. Well, <laughs> I don't, well, like, he's I don't dead. Know. All right, he's good now. Don't worry, kids. I wonder if his plan, like, wandering into the village as much as he did, maybe his plan, maybe he was trying to, like, you know, death by cop. He like, suicidal? <laughs> <laughs> he's like, I'm immortal. <laughs> There's like a really dark, Please like, kill me. like Groundhog Day-esque movie out there. It's just him trying to like die in comedic ways. And they're just so inept at killing this bear. <laughs> I love the idea that Brave is a day in the in the Groundhog Day life of Mordude the bear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, was, I was just seeing it from a different perspective <laughs> I mean maybe the thing is though there is a like Pixar short or something it came up in Disney We're Plus gonna, yeah we have to watch it yeah I have it I, I never watched it and I'm wondering maybe that explains I mean, it maybe it's I, I don't know maybe it was I, I, you know we're being told this story for the witch maybe it was his brother I was know. actually going to say even sitting here just talking about it, I'm thinking you know the logical answer here in a way is that, you know, when you become your instinct totally, it's kind of like get out, you know, like you're in the sunken place, but you're a bear type of thing, I feel like. Because it's like, well, I'm just using it as an example, you know, because the mom doesn't seem to have yeah, much Yeah, yeah, I'm just control. imagining a bear I in know, that like, situation. Imagine, like, Eleanor just, like, we get that sunken place visual while Meredith's like, Mom, Mom! And Meredith's just, like, trying to swim up. Anyway, um... <laughs> In, in that regard, you know, you're free from your prison. So he's like, oh, thank you for that. But also, like, he got in that prison being, like, a power-hungry warlord. So it's not like he's yeah. good now. It's like, all right, I do, I do, I, I do love when, when movies do this, where it's like, it's when, it, when she was, like, telling the story and it panned to the four princes or whatever. And it's, like, three normal dudes and then one guy who's, like, this giant dude who's in, like, in a, you know, heavy, heavy metal band kind of thing. It's like, oh, I wonder which one's evil. <laughs> it's, it's, it's so stupid but I love it and then it's, uh, it's weird that they do that with the suitors as well they show all of the inappropriate suitors and then there's the one huge hot guy that Merida like gets interested and in. she like sits up on her chair and like oh and, muscles you know That's I kind of so hate cool. that joke too no but I kind of hate that joke too because it's like She's like, all right, I'd be okay marrying this hawk. I'm like, that's not what this character is. That well, I, th I actually think that really humanizes her in like a, like this movie could all just be like, oh, we have to save the kingdom. But like her actually being like kind of shallow is I feel like the really one who has fanboys is totally attractive. He's just kind of a jerk. Well, if she had to get married, though, like, if she didn't think she had any other alternative, of course she's going to choose the hottest guy. Honestly, when she came back, I didn't know she was going to say, at the end of the movie, when she returns to the castle with her mom, and then she has to tell the clans something to get them to stop fighting, I kind of thought she wasn't going to say the dumb thing, which is, we all should be friends again. I thought she was going to, like, I thought she was going to do what she did in the beginning and declare the most outrageous suitor to be her prince, and that would have created an interesting thing to resolve in the last part of the movie. But, you know, that didn't happen. There's so many cool things in the movie. I think it's really cool that she embarrasses everybody by outshooting them and then asking for her own hand in marriage. I wish it was connected to other parts of the film other than being just a way to, for her to embarrass people. The first 30 minutes are perfectly fine outside of the tonal issues, but then it falls apart. That scene is great. I agree. That, that's a good scene. It's a pretty hard move. <laughs> yeah. There's a reason it was the main scene they marketed. <laughs> 
Yeah, shoot, I mean, shooting an arrow through another arrow, I mean, it's, it's a stereotype or a, a trope, rather, but it's still cool, no matter how many times I see it in any Robin Hood movie or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's great. What's great is also to me, like, the speed in which she does it, you know? It's like she's just casually moving between them, you know? 2012 was the year of archery. That was the thing people were talking about when this movie came out, because there was, like, Avengers had just come out, and I know Hawkeye is, like, brainwashed from all that movie, but he was part of it. And then, of course, The Hunger Games was that year, too, so it's, like, it was the year of archery. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, girls yeah. in archery, definitely. Well, when, yeah, when did, uh, that, <laughs> well, we don't. when did that Russell Crowe Robin Hood movie come out? That, I think, was maybe the following year. I can just quickly... It might have actually been mm. this year, though, because that movie kind of bombed. God. So I'm unsure... Of, oh, no, but I, it wasn't I, this year, I this year was um, Prometheus. it far too young. It was it very was bloody. Oh, yeah. So, two years ago. 2010, damn. So, we can thank Russell Crowe for this movie. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, when Mark Andrews came on board, he was the one who was like, we're adding the bears in the boat to the bear in the boat. And Brenda Chapman forgot about those. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> she meant bow as in, like, B-E-A-U. It was about, like, you know? no, 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 no. She meant, like, the bear in the bow. And it was, like, about learning to respect your elders and bow down to them, you know, because they're... Oh, it's, it's a bow nice as in a bear a on a boat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, man, is Danny going to drop some, like, deep boat knowledge to make this joke land? <laughs> Speaking of that, I think this might be the time I bring up, um... I mean, I think it's... I, I kind of talking about it throughout, but, like, you know, the, the, the Brenda Chapman of it all. I don't know, Scott, if you've watched The Prince... And the Prince of Egypt was co-directed by other people too, but like we've seen her. Oh, movie. Prince of Egypt is like. Did she direct Prince of Egypt? She was one of three directors on it. But unlike this, Whoa. unlike this, Whoa, where I it's like they that. were separate directors, they were a team. There, so it's a little different. I mean, I I I love Prince of Egypt. It's, it's one of my favorite films. Oh, that's awesome! Mm-hmm. It's a good movie. I should rewatch it again outside the context of this podcast. Oh, the sound the soundtrack alone is just great. But uh, yeah, it's a brilliant movie. And then, Sarah, you've seen Prince of Egypt, right? Um, if you haven't, it's okay. Well, probably like 20 years ago. Okay. Yeah, I, I keep trying to get it to watch it with me, but no. <laughs> it's, it you is should worth... also watch, You should watch that and the How to Train Your Dragon movies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I, I don't need to see two and three. We only watch bad movies. <laughs> <laughs> so you watch Brave together. All right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Brave. It's worth it for the acting, which I mean, I mean that even though it's an animated thing, it really is like, what was, there was even like a clip of Ramsey's going around online for a while. Like for some reason around the time we recorded that episode, which is maybe neither here nor there, but just, it's such an incredible movie to watch Prince of Egypt. Unlike Brave, but anyway, Danny, you were saying I don't know. I'm gonna. I might contest your analysis of the Brenda Chapman of of well, this whole thing think, because no, 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 she's always. What I wanted to bring up, and this is why I want Sarah to watch Turning Red. So sorry, sorry, Scott, since you haven't seen Turning Red, is like we have it's now bad. the example of like what a Pixar movie that actually got finished by a woman is. You know, like it took it took them ten years after this movie to give it to an upper woman. I don't know. I feel like that's even flawed. Maybe Sarah, you're ahead of well, me on Sarah, this. Well, but Sarah, I'm bringing up Sarah because you know, Sarah, you do Femtober. You you like studying female filmmakers outside of Greta Gerwig, which is fine. We all have, no. I realize me saying like, which is fine. That sounds like my general like that's fine sarcasm. It's it is fine that you don't like Greta Gerwig. That's fine, but. I'm just curious, like, from your perspective on that, because that's why I, d- I did want you to watch Turning Red, because I know you are into this idea of, like, you know, gender criticism with movie directors. I mean, you can definitely tell that Turning Red is directed by a woman, obviously. I think that's no question. I think Brave is so... I mean, I really don't... I, like, 
I don't want to say this because it's going to sound a certain way, but it really is like as soon as the men touched it, it just completely lost everything that it was trying to do. And I just feel like I do find it interesting. Like people really like I feel like our opinion on Brave is probably not unique. I think that people generally would rate Brave pretty low. You'd be surprised though. Some people at my some people at my school old today because I brought up I was talking about Brave tonight and I hated it. They were like offended by me, and I was like. <laughs> One of them, I was like, no offense, you have, you're of the age this movie came out when you were a kid, and um, also, well, you this movie probably came out when you were like 10 or, like, you know, older kid, but also you have red hair, so I kind of assume, it's one right. of those things where I kind of assume you're biased towards it, like, you know, as a child, I'm biased to Danny Phantom, because, hey, that's my name, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like. There's the representation gingers needed in the world. Well, now they're, you know, there's no, there's none of them left. Um, no, they're being replaced. <laughs> Oh, I hate that. What are they going to make bright? No, I'm not going to go Well, <laughs> I will say, yeah, I know. Well, I think it's interesting. I think that I feel like as a society, we've become so much meaner. And I feel like if you look at the reception of, like the fan, fan reception of Turning Red, like it was just really like vile. And I think, hmm. you know, it's just, it's interesting. I feel like now that studios are really becoming more diverse and they're creating these things that are more female focused and queer focused and you know poc focused i feel like people are now like we just had barbenheimer yeah Link. well Sorry. <laughs> that's like you know, I'm, I'm not gonna say anything nuts. about it <laughs> i just feel like people people are really like outspoken about it and i feel like you can't say that with brave i feel like nobody is gonna say like Brave sucks because it was made by a woman. Like, I feel like nobody says that. And I think with a lot of things nowadays, people really do kind of go towards that. I think, and I don't want to get too heavy into this with Turning Red. I actually think with Turning Red, the issue, and I don't want to, like, get into the culture war of that, too, because it's, like, it was a toxic culture war that everyone, like, I saw was annoyed by. I honestly think that was more over her being, you know, a person of color, a woman of color. No, I agree. And I think that's, like, the nuances are really different, too, because it's something made by a white woman versus, you know, an Asian woman. Yeah. But I also think, I I think back to this guy who is, like, I don't remember his name, one of the various people on film Twitters, but more in the box office realm, where it was, like, all this turning red discourse would be would not have happened if it was just put out in theaters. Because it's not it's not like the Captain Marvel Brigade is gonna put out YouTube videos talking about turning red woke what if it was just like a Pixar movie out in theaters, right? They they wouldn't care. Mm. Um, but like the fact that it was like on Disney Plus and it was like, oh, this is inappropriate for my kid, and you couldn't really point to it being a success as like shut up, you know. Like well, I know one, I know Wonder Woman and Captain Marvel both hit that stuff, but I do think like the superhero complex is different than the you know Pixar animated or Disney animated film stuff. Well, I don't. I mean, I agree. I think that's definitely part of it. I think also like if you look at like Lightyear, it it also got that kind of pushback that it was too yeah. woke. Um, but again, the wokeness doesn't come from Lightyear. It comes from everybody but, else. Hey. This year, there's a non-binary character in the movie where no one is human, and it's gotten no backlash. Sorry. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, the way they got that was when they did the the Star Wars game had a non-binary alien. I think that I think that people were a little bit critical of the. No, okay. Like the criticism from that came from people like on the left who were like, "This is ridiculous. You're trying to brag about this." It wasn't from like the far right where it's like, "This is too woke." 
which is like oh. that's uh, what I mean. It was okay. like first Disney gay kind of situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I mean. It, there was backlash, but not like backlash from like the right, which is I think more what we're talking about with stuff like it would mm. brave be discourse to death, like turning red was right. I think well, that's what we're working on. And not uh, well. I don't know. I guess maybe maybe it would at the same time. I feel like people also really nowadays really don't like this type of character. Like it just I don't know. People really like to throw the W word around when it's somebody who's not a white man. I think also I think this is really important. I'm going to cuz we we talked about this movie before this podcast. I mentioned it already on here, but I think the early 2010s is defined by the Hunger Games and movies. And I think that's a big reason also yes. why this was like, you know, it's like, oh, well, Katniss uses an arrow. I don't care that this princess uses an arrow. It's like, we already, like, we had this. Like, no one's going to be mad about Merida, like, standing up to her mom with an arrow. Because to us, it's like, oh, it's like Katniss, you know? Like, you're not, you're not going to directly say that. But, like, it's what's running for everyone's heads when there's these commercials, too. You know, like, I'm sure those commercials were very plain from the Hunger Games. Hunger Games has started a whole new trend it's like of young adult kind of novels. But you are right. It was this kind of... At least for me, you know, as a, you know, coming up into a teenager, like this first time of like having a female character be the main kind of character and stuff. And I read the books, I think, before watching the movies or I watched like the first one, then read all the books. And so it was this kind of situation where it's like, I I kind of, not being on the internet, avoided any of the backlash and uproar about it, which I think there was some not necessarily towards Katniss. And so I do wonder if There was if actually, you, though, racist cat backlash to the first Yeah, there, there, was, there was Rue. Yeah. I know about Rue. Yeah. But I, I do wonder if you just plucked Hunger Games as if it never came out in 2011 or whenever it came out and plopped it down into 2021, 2022. Like, would it sad. be kind of ignored or would it be have the exact same backlash that it would have if it was, you know... Uh, turning red or anything like this you know this strong female character oh they're just pandering kind of thing it's kind of a weird question because in a way i don't think and sarah you might come after me for this i don't really think wonder woman gets the big green light without the hunger games i don't think stuff like captain marvel gets the big green and not maybe eventually maybe captain marvel still does because you know at that time you know marvel was like just doing whatever you know it was after black panther where like black panther had no precursor like the hunger games was yeah and, and marvel had the whole thing with ike pearlbutter stopping any female superhero so who knows yeah. what would have happened but there. what i more mean here is i think I think in a lot of... Because I mentioned this in our John Carter episode, is that people forget that The Hunger Games was not like Twilight or Harry Potter. The first two Hunger Games did more than the Harry Potter movies did, for the most part. The, fir- the hu- first two Hunger Games, and you know, later on, it wasn't that the movies... I mean, the movies got a little worse, and also, you know, naturally, audiences are going to taper off interest when there's a part one. We're seeing that right now with Mission Impossible. But in general, it's just like... Those movies were, like, I, I said this in the John Carter episode, my parents went to see the Hunger Games movies. They were big yeah. movies in general. And they were, like, female-led movies. I think the only really big one before, and people are going to be like, well, Danny, what about this thing from the 80s you forgot about? But I'll be this like, the like only the, really... The Jennifer Lawrence backlash all over again. But, like, I was going to say, like, <laughs> what really huge movie came out in the U.S. between the Hunger Games and Titanic? Like, with a female lead. I'm sure there are a couple in there, but I think The Hunger Games was the first, like, franchise mm. to really, you know, make $400 million a movie, female lead. And yes, the Jennifer Lawrence backlash came into effect, too. <laughs> I, I would also I would also say, like, I mean, I could be wrong, but, like, the, the whole part one, part two thing, 
I feel like the Hunger Games really started that. Oh, you are wrong because Harry Potter started. Sorry, I wasn't. I wasn't yeah, sure. Yeah. I wasn't sure if Seven came out before. That was the only thing. And like the only other thing I could think of was the Hobbit Twilight. came out before. But that's a whole different. Twilight. Yeah, Hunger Games honestly kind of killed the part one, part two trend until like this year when it. Right, that must. Be, maybe yeah. maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, I, I I'm just thinking it did definitely you know start this whole thing with young adult novels with the Maze Runners and the divergence or whatever the hunger games is what shows studios that these movies can be made well female-led movies female-led action movies and young adult book adaptations can be made to like serve everyone right it's not like um and i know i know there's a couple like there's tomb raider right to the first tomb raider was a hit like stuff like that i know there's like female movie like because jennifer lawrence was made to be a movie star by the hunger games that's what finally like she was an x-men the year before no one knew who she was Hunger Games made her a movie star. At the time, she was, like, you know, on the up. She had an Oscar nomination, which is a bit more than some other people. But, like, that, the Hunger Games is what proved, like, you could do this type of thing. And to get back to Brave a bit, even though we can still talk about this if you want, Sarah, because I know I'm, like, making these broad, sweeping generalizations well, about female-led movies. Well, and if you want to call me out for them, feel free to. I know. Well, I think you are missing kind of a critical piece here, because I think that, like, I kind of want to go back to Twilight a little bit. Because Twilight had, you know, it was directed by Catherine Hardwick and it was like a zero budget movie and it was a bunch of unknown actors and it was this huge success. And then she got fired and every single movie after that was directed by a man. Hunger Games was directed by men. Fifty Shades of Grey was first directed by a woman and then every single one after that has been a man. I I kind of want to push back on this idea that like Hunger Games kind of paved the way for Wonder Woman. I think Wonder Woman paved the way for Captain Marvel but I think that, like, I don't think studios see it that way at all. I don't think they see, like, oh, let's put a, a girl in the lead and people will see it. I think it's, I think they know their audience. I think they know that it's going to be women. But I think that they also don't know their audience because I think, as we've seen with Black Panther, which I think studios still don't get it, like, people want to see things that are made by people like them. I mean, I think, and again, I know you're not into Greta Gerwig, but I think in a way... A better way to even put it is Wonder Woman paved the way for Barbie, right? Right. Like, I don't think the Barbie movie happens without so Wonder Woman. I think Greta Gerwig's even said that recently. I saw, I saw a headline or whatever where she talked about Wonder Woman paving the way for Barbie, actually. Yeah, because, like, do you give... Because, to be honest, ten years ago, Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach write a Barbie movie. They're going to give Noah Baumbach to direct, right? right? <laughs> so, well, like... It's just interesting that, like, like James Cameron can say, like, well, I know how to make a, a female lead. And it's like, but you don't get it, though. Like, and I think studios still don't get it. I can't believe I forgot Terminator 2 in my... Yeah. <laughs> well, th- those movies are Arnold, you know, Mark. But anyway, sorry, right. yeah. Well, I hate to say yeah. it, but... And, and, and she, she really is only the strong action hero in the second one. Yes, that's very true. In the first one, she's just you know final girl type of thing i mean the, the first the first one's a horror movie which is why i kind of prefer it but then then she's got cancer with three and dies <laughs> and <it's> like, okay <laughs> i like t2 but it's okay if people don't <laughs> well oh no no i, I like t2 yeah. i like t2 but i prefer t1 but it's all anyway i also hate to say it but there's also beatrix kiddo from kill bill which again not made by a woman so it doesn't count but also though the hunger games was so much exponentially bigger than that that's more right. what i mean is like right it, yeah. yeah the hunger games the shield magnitude yeah because the hunger the people this is one of the crazy i'm gonna give you drop you 
a crazy box office stat about the Hunger Games, and then Mark, I feel like, wants us to get back to Brave because he's being quiet. Um, <laughs> not, no, this is a good conversation. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I always feel a little underread when we talk about like gender analysis of film, even though like. <sighs> Yeah, but see the Barbie movie. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, I want to see the Barbie movie. It's just that, like, I feel like it's very important, but I'm usually, like, the more ignorant person in the room, so I'd rather not be like, have you thought about this? Because that's dumb. But so, that's why I'm being quiet. It's that You could keep going, because I actually think this is interesting. This, to me, is the one of the more... You know, I followed box office for a while, and The Hunger Games as a series was the... It's, it's really a crazy stat... But it's also something that's going to take me a while to explain because it's kind of an itch staff. But once I explain it, it will. So historically speaking, once a movie comes out and opens to over $400 million, no matter what, the sequel's going to decrease. Like, just because that first movie was the breakout, right? Not everyone's going to come back because everyone had their curiosity satisfied by the first movie. You see this even with sequels. Like, you know, like... And the, you're gonna, I'm going to list some, and you're going to be like, well, Danny, The Dark Knight, how did he fledge her? That obviously, but like, The Dark Knight to Dark Knight Rises, Avatar to Avatar 2. If they made a Top Gun 3, it would drop. Barbie, if they make a sequel, it's going to drop. Like, that's just a fact. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> Four years from now, Barbie 2 comes out, it makes more. Anyway, The Hunger Games, the first one made $408 million, which meant, you know, I was on my box office forum at the time, you know, and everyone was like, 2013, what's going to be the biggest movie of the year? Well, it's not going to be Catching Fire. You can rule that out because there's going to be another movie in 2013 that makes more. I'm going to actually open up 2013 right now to try to figure out, like, what the other one we were thinking of would win. But I feel like even, like, Man of Steel wasn't discussion, you know, like Superman reboot. We haven't had one of those in a while. Iron Man 3, you know, people thought, like, well, Iron Man 3 might be able to do it coming off of the Avengers. Or Despicable Me 2, like, no one thought that Catching Fire would beat any of these. Because, you know, the first one made like 400 on the dot, so this one's probably gonna make 375, 350. Catching Fire makes 400, it makes 25 million more, which might not seem like a lot, but statistically, as I said, this is the only one of these movies to really increase. Since then, I think, you know, like Infinity War to Endgame increased, but that's a little different too, because, you know, that was like people don't wanna get spoiled type of thing, right? I just think it's that that speaks to what the phenomenon of the Hunger Games was, is that, and how broad it was, is that this movie, that was huge in theaters, and not, you know, pe- not everyone's going to go back for every sequel, right? That's just a fact, right? People are going to see the first movie, not come back for a sequel. But then it still did well, well, like, on home video and stuff, that people, it somehow still increased from a huge number. I, I don't know, I think that's, that's just a fun little box office tip about the Hunger Games movie. And then, you know, the third one dropped off. <laughs> and then, <laughs> that's the fourth one. But Hungry. Well, that's yeah. the kind of thing. Is that's kind of interest actually. So I just interject because I, because like I said, I think I watched the first one maybe on DVD, then read the books, and then we watched the second one, and then I think it was, I think it was part two um, of whichever one it is, Mockingjay or whatever the the third one's called, where we went to the cinema for it because we we maybe kind of late to the bandwagon or just didn't necessarily see it, and so it was kind of this thing where I mean it probably happened more with the second one is people heard about the Hunger Games. And then watched it when it came out, and then was like, "Wow, I love this!" And then went to the second one when it came out, you know, in cinema. And then they might have dropped off more than three. You know, more people are probably going to jump on in the second one than the third one, kind of thing. What I like, what I think is so interesting about the Hunger Games with my family was I saw the first one, you know, with my friends, and then my dad asked me to go again with him like three weeks later because it's like I want to see this too, you know. 
Because uh, let's talk about it. And your mom doesn't want to see it because she doesn't want to see kids killing each other. Whatever. Sequel <laughs> comes out, you know. I go with my dad and my older brother to it. Because my older brother saw the first one on DVD. Third one comes out. My dad is doing something, but my mom had seen the second one on TV, so we checked out the first one, the second one from the library, and then we went to go see the third one. And then for the last one, the entire family of five went. It was just constantly, like, growing the audience within my family between the movies. Because it was just, you know, people didn't think they'd like it, then they saw it, like, yeah, no, that was good. I don't know. It's just interesting, because I, I, and I meant to say our John Carter episode, it's so interesting that Hunger Games were such a, like, prevailing cultural force when they feel much like, you know, people talk about the first Avatar movie, it's like, there's no cultural footprint. But whereas, like, you know, Avatar you know had the 3d legacy and the cgi legacy and the hunger games had like studios baking on i know not necessarily female directors but like female action like leading a movie again and again it didn't Mm -hmm. really do a lot until you know they finally gave it to a female director on wonder woman anyway brave (laughs) brave what are, what are some other things we think about when we think about Brave? Well, I think we can bring up one thing with Brave that I, I wanted to mention, and I did mention briefly. Before we get to, like, you know, our closing questions, unless there's other stuff we want to talk about from you guys, is we always like to talk about the music on this show. And I think it's really interesting, because to me, Patrick Doyle is such an underrated composer, generally, because he does all of Branagh's films, Kenneth Branagh's films. And I generally think... I think the Cinderella score is beautiful. I think there's a lot of... I think... There's a moment in Thor Ragnarok, and I actually talked about this on my other podcast, we did a Thor Ragnarok episode, where I think Patrick Doyle is the only person who did a Thor score that's actually really great. Although I like the Ragnarok score because of how different it is. But there's this moment at the end of Ragnarok where it just blares his original Thor theme, and I'm like, that feels so right and good. And I bring all this up to say I think the score here is really forgettable. Because <laughs> I, I, do, I do not like actually the score of the film that much. I think it's very... Whatever, I let the credits roll to see like if it would sink in for me, and I still was like, I don't really feel it, personally. All that said, I do like the, the songs. I like the songs yeah, a lot. Yeah, I think it's great. Like, the music in this is really special. Do you mean the songs or the score or both? The, the songs. I am always baffled by how you can hear the score <laughs> in these movies. Like, I think it's been a long time since I've, like, recognized the music in a film. I mean, the score in a film. But I, I really enjoyed the songs. Yeah, for, for me, like, with the soundtrack, like, it was it was good. And, like, it was all traditional kind of instruments and stuff. But you are right where afterwards you're like, I, I can't remember a specific theme. You know, you can't think of, oh, this is Merida's theme or this is Mor- yeah. Mordu's theme or whatever. But, like, uh, like Julie Fowler's who did Touch the Sky, it, it's a really, really good song. I kind of wish there was a Gaelic version because mm. she's a Gaelic singer and it's a really, really beautiful singing. But there wasn't really that. Is there? Is there one on the soundtrack? Maybe I don't know. I'm... So the only the only Gaelic one is where it's the nursery rhyme that Emma Watson and Kid Merida sings. So props to Emma Watson for Emma for singing in Gaelic. Emma Thompson. Mm. Uh, <laughs> but I will say, get, getting getting Mumford and Sons to do the credit <laughs> song was the biggest slap in the face since we got the the no vote in fucking twenty fourteen. That was I I heard that I was like, this is Mumford and Sons. Like, oh, we need man. more of the Diego Luna covering Mumford and Sons. That's a deep cut reference. But it's good. Uh, it is a good cover. <laughs> <laughs> Not a Pixar movie. But yeah, when I, when I like obviously it's it's like Birdie whoever who's still English. So it's like okay, but it's like I I, I don't know why it's like Mumford and Sons. Is it just because they play a ukulele or whatever? Yeah, I, I mean, know. I think so. They were also yeah, very yeah. relevant. I mean, it was like 2012. That was like yeah. the big. That was like around the time when he met Carrie Mulligan. 
they became a power couple. Really? <laughs> yeah. One of them presumably voted for Mitt Romney. <laughs> <laughs> presumably, I think we Sorry, I think we can say for certain. Drop allegation on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like a mystery. <laughs> you know, we talked a little bit about the voice acting, but I did want to shout out a little bit, even though we did compliment her. I actually do think Emma Thompson does a really good job here, but she's always a good voice performer. Yeah, it's it's it, yeah. I, I I like Emma Thompson. It's not terrible. You know, it's not stereotypical. If you, I, I'm sure, if you never said it to anyone, it was Emma Thompson. Whether they believe it was a Scottish person, I will say though, just to kind of segue into this. If if Merida was voiced by Reese Witherspoon, it would have been terrible. Well, it's, it says that she she did admit in like when she was doing press for Sing that like I I left because I could not nail the accent. Yeah, which is it's like if if somebody can't nail the accent, obviously they did. But it's like just get somebody with the accent. Like I don't know why that isn't their first step. I did mm-hmm. want to say that Kelly McDonald. I feel like. It's kind of, um, I'm about to talk about Barry really brief, brief, briefly, sorry Sarah, but you know, everyone's talking about Ryan Gosling and Barbie, and I'm kind of there going like, Margot is actually really great in this, but it's one of those things where it just feels so casually good that you don't even notice it. Mm. And that's what I feel about Kelly McDonald in this, where it's like, it's not like Emma, Emma Thompson I can call as great, because again, I think the movie loses a lot when she stops talking, right? Like, that is how I can tell you that Emma Thompson's great, because I miss her presence so much when she's not here. But I think Kelly McDonald yeah. does her best to keep it together, and it's really the script that's letting it. I never think Merida is, like, voiced weird. I think she's really, it's really a good performance as someone who doesn't do a lot of voice work, other than, you know, like, popping up as Merida on the rides and, like, video games now. Yeah, I, d- I don't I, I never I haven't seen Vecca Ralph 2 but I, I think I like saw the the trailer or whatever a bunch and so it was it was quite good to obviously hear her and Phil Scott's yeah. you know yelling about something with the the crazy look in her eyes so it's good that I, and I think you know she, she was pretty good in it I think it was kind of overselling sometimes but I do think you're right where it's more of the script than her yeah but I just you know the way the way she says I'll be shooting for my own hand iconic like that's like the most iconic lineup read of mm-hmm. this movie I feel like and of course it's because it was on all the marketing but also it works well in the movie too <laughs> Did she ever yeah. actually say, if you had a chance to change your fate, would if you? If you could change your fate, <laughs> would you? Would you? <laughs> there you go. I, she did, she, she kept, didn't like, dancing know. around it, and I was like, what, <laughs> am I, 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 what's wrong with me? I feel like at the end of the movie where she, like, gives her monologue, she's like, I guess you can you change your fate, but you gotta work for it, or whatever she says, and I was just like... I just kind of was like, is that what this movie was about? Like, great, great. I guess this movie had a point to it, other than try to, like, have a good relationship with your mother and daughters. Because yeah. I, I don't really... We're going to find out she never actually said that in the trailer, and it's just been this huge, big Mandela effect where everyone's like, oh, if you could change your fate, would you? And it just doesn't exist. <laughs> What if she says it in Wreck-It Ralph 2? Imagine if that's what she oh. says it. Hearing her not say it, but like the other dialogue was like we were getting like the Asylum version of Brave Dialogue when she's like, when she's like I, paraphrasing it. Yeah, I guess in a way that line is more iconic than I'll be shooting for my own hand, but I'll be shooting for my own hand is actually in Which the movie. Which may not even so. exist. Let me see. Hold on. What if this is just a meme? It's gotta be she in the trailer. It's gotta be in the trailer. It has to be like some because tra- it, it definitely sounds like a trailer <laughs> thing. But it's like if you could change your fate, would you? And it's like, oh, her mom's a bear. You know? Well, it's also Whoa. I know that, that was something we didn't talk about here. It's how none of the trailers alluded to them being like 
bear transformations in this movie and how that was just like such a big shock when people saw it it's like this movie is about the mom turning into a bear and it was like that's it that's like the, how she changes her fate i don't think she really changes her fate I, that's a hot take but i i don't think she really does she does. i agree i don't know why we <laughs> forgot about the prince hole thing but we did I like reading the Google autocompletes with Merida's voice. <laughs> if you had the chance to legalize something that is illegal, what? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I just searched that up. I was like, wait a minute. Well, well, Google, if you had the chance to save your phone, well, okay. hey, Google's listening to me. Here, I found it. I found it. There's oh, yeah, a five-second video on YouTube. Of yeah, her what, saying it in the, the trailer. I'm sorry. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna Ask watch a trailer. Right, if you had a chance to here. change your fate, would you? So I wanted, you know, just. If, if we were watching these films in order as they came out, what do you think this would do to your image of the Pixar brand? What would it made, make you think about the next film they were going to release? And I feel like, I, I don't know, it's really hard for me on this one because I feel like there was a lot of great stuff in here, but then also you had the director change and the movie doesn't really connect its threads. So I would actually be kind of hopeful because of... Things like, oh, this was about a mother-daughter relationship. Well, let's see what happens in the next one if they don't have the very unusual director change. Here's my thought. Because the, the, the other way we have the question worded in the doc is, how does this make us feel about Pixar in general? And to me, obviously I don't like the movie, so it's negative. But very specifically, you know, the last time they did a director change, it wasn't as publicized. It was kicking Jan Pinkava off of Ratatouille. And I really like Ratatouille. I think Ratatouille is a great movie. This movie is the first time I think, huh, maybe this micromanaging thing they do there isn't a good thing. You know, like maybe, maybe the idea of kicking someone off, a woman off her project about like the relationship she had with her daughter and the relationship she, she had growing up with her mother, maybe that was a bad idea. You know, like just because you, you feel like, you know, you can tell people, come to our studio, we'll let you make personal auteur driven animated movies. Because that's what they did with Brad Bird, and that's what they did with Brenda Chapman in theory. And they let Brad Bird make Incredibles, right? Which is a Brad Bird movie. Like, that is a movie that is so clearly like Brad Bird all the way through that that movie. And here well, they're like, well, Brad, I know Brad Bird is a man. And well, I don't think John Lasseter made a pass at Brad Bird. That, yeah. that's, that's true, too. Um, but because I'm just saying at the time, right? At the time, we didn't know that. Here I'm just I'm saying in 2012, I see this movie... It's a mess. I don't like it, although I'm thinking maybe it's because I'm at the driving, but I'm still like, I'm not a big fan of Brave. I don't think it's that... It, I, I, that the nicest thing I'm going to say to it is it's mid, mid-tier. Or, like, it's better than Cars 2, right? Which I probably didn't even say at the time because I always have liked Cars 2. But <laughs> I look at this and I go, maybe this brain trust thing they have is starting to get in the way of, like, their auteurism that they've embraced recently with Ratatouille, Wally, and... Because I look at what Mark Andrews is doing here, and I don't feel confident at all. And I know, Mark, you're like, well, don't assume like what people are making here is what they're making. But I really, you know, we watch Prince of Egypt. And again, that's a team of directors. But Brenda Chapman's stuff is, that movie is so much more serious than this constantly. There aren't, like, the goofiness is contained to Martin Short and Steve Martin, basically. And they are still relatively like they're they're jokes but they are they can be serious in that movie this movie is like packed with the bad humor and it just feels like it feels very executive mandated i remember when jay was on uh, the the 
guests we talked about the most on this podcast too. But anyway, and he was like, you know, they do those three. They do they do Ratatouille, Wally, and Up. And then as soon as Disney buys them, they greenlight Toy Story 3, Cars 2, and a Disney Princess movie. And that's what this feels like. But the thing is about, even with the bear and the bow, it's like, okay, you're giving an interesting directorate, right? And it's like, no, we're giving it to this guy who I don't want to say what he's done before because I don't know what Mark... He did He did the one-man band short, right? Which is a mm. gag-driven short based around slapstick. And then he does this, and it's like, whatever. I don't know. I just It makes me feel negative about the brain trust. That's what it is. Because is the idea that the originals are, are going to be risky, and you put out this, which to me feels like the least risky thing Pixar's made so far... Even less so than Cars 2, because again, on paper, Cars 2 is like, let's make a sequel to the Take Life Slow movie, and they can be about spies. That is a risk. <laughs> like, it's a dumb risk to take, but it is a risk. I look at this, and I'm just like, what happened? That, that's my, my that, I feel negative about it. Thinking back to, like, when I when I watched it, I don't think I necessarily cared about that stuff, you know, because I was a child, and I don't think children do, but, like, thinking about it now, and you look back at the Disney films and then you think, I mean, because the next film after this was obviously Monsters University, which was, like, a sequel, also not necessarily received well, but then it was Inside Out, which I don't know if it was received well, but I think a lot of people do still talk about. It was very well received. It's like, um... Right, yeah. so... Go on, sorry. So I wonder if that that, that kind of it's and, and that doesn't seem to follow anything from Brave because kind of like what we were saying earlier, Brave didn't set the standards for anything. It didn't really do anything to to make it stand out or be something else that it, that then influenced later films. It's just kind of there. And I think her being a Disney princess is more telling that it's kind of what her legacy is yeah. as, a, as a Disney thing rather than a Pixar thing. So not necessarily more about Pixar the studio, but it's certainly just, it's nothing groundbreaking. Before, Sarah, we ask for your take, can I can I say something I just discovered that I feel like is important, which is insane, is I just scrolled down to the, um, the awards this one, okay? And I want to point out, actually, this did not win animated feature at the Emmys. At the Annie's, not the Emmys. That is where Wreck-It Ralph won. So I guess I wasn't crazy about it being, like, an upset. But I was going to say, which was more important, is the song that kept being nominated at places for, like, original song, like the Critics' Choice, the Grammys, none, nothing was nominated at the Oscars, the Satellite Awards, was the Mumford & Son song. Somehow not touch the sky. And I'm just like, What? I guess the Grammys make sense because it's like we want we want to give an award to Mumford and Sons, but like the other two, I'm like you guys are supposed to be like like film people, right? I don't I don't understand that. Yeah. Anyway. So it's Sarah. If you saw this movie just out of the blue, what would it do to your thoughts about Pixar? I don't know. Like when I was younger, this movie came out when I was 16. I was kind of phased out of Pixar. I did see Monster University because obviously. I did have an interest in this. I felt like it was a girl movie. I felt like Pixar didn't have a lot of girl movies. And I really remember having this thought process. Like, back then, I was thinking, like, there's Jessie. That's that's it. So I did feel like this was going to be a girl movie. Obviously, I didn't end up seeing it in theaters. But I felt like, you know, I liked that she was a Disney princess. So I feel like they kind of, they tried to get their hooks into who the audience would be. But I don't know. I feel like... I really, at the time, I really liked Toy Story 3. Now I look back on it, and I don't. But I just think that, in general, I think that Pixar kind of started to fall off for me at this point. I just, like, this was kind of when I stopped watching their movies. I don't know. I feel like it just isn't very interesting. It wasn't a very interesting, like, if I didn't want to see it, or if I, I didn't go to see it, then it obviously wasn't that interesting to me. 
if I could save Monsters University. And I just feel like they've never really gotten me back, to be honest. I feel like their concepts are presented in such a way. And even with Monsters University, like it was going to be a direct sequel. You saw Coco four times though. Sorry. Yeah, but I didn't, I wasn't interested in it. I mean, obviously I was when I saw it, but like there wasn't anything like, like there's nothing in their concepts that feels interesting to me. I feel like this movie did no favors. I feel like, you know, especially like I remember when they announced like what Onward was going to be about. And I was just like, ugh, like, it's about two brothers and their dad. Like, all right. Like, well, you you know me. I'm going to obnoxiously push that you go see Elio when it's out just because it's our boy Adrian. Yeah. Well, you said earlier in this podcast, and I could timestamp it, that co-directors don't count. So. Okay, but he's <laughs> but the, the writers do. Writers, that's the thing. Writers do, and he did write the he did write Coco, and you know, like you're right though. I did say that. You're correct. I just feel like, <laughs> and so much of Pixar now, and I feel like this came kind of became like you know, there's that like Tom Merlin that's like, what if toys had feelings? What if monsters had feelings? And I feel like this kind of started this trend that I really don't like in animated movies, where a character becomes an animal. And I feel like they did it with this. I feel like they did it with uh, Soul, very controversially. I feel like... I want to just say, Princess and the Frog was two years prior to... Or are you talking about Pixar? Well, I mean Pixar, but I also... Like, that counts too. (laughs) It's wild... I'm sorry. It's wild that every movie that, like could possibly influence this movie came out two years before and then that's just before they they got rid of Brendan Chapman it was like Princess and the Frog Tangled Robin Hood get Mark Andrews every single studio like here's what this movie is here's how you can rip us off before the movie comes it just yeah I don't know I just feel like they really did her no favors and I just feel like it's just unfortunate it's just unfortunate that I feel like she hasn't really gotten her due. I mean, she was still a senior member at Pixar, but like, so it was not Lassiter. She has another movie that we'll talk about eventually, so that'll be interesting. Is it on Apple TV? Uh, no. It is actually fun. Fun fact was I went to um, you know, whenever I go to New York, Mark knows this. I go to the Book Off Bookstore or or DVD because it's basically a resale shop where you can get stuff for really cheap. And I found her movie will eventually cover there. And it really made me laugh because it like it stars like Michael Caine, Angelina Jolie, uh, David Oyelowo, and Gugu Mbefara. And the DVD like lists the most bizarre credits for all of them, like for most famous. Like this is what I remember is um, Michael Caine, most famous for The Dark Knight and Tenet. And I was like, really? You had to go with two Christopher Nolan movies and one of them with Tenet? <laughs> like... <laughs> But um, yeah, it's like um, it's like a Sundance movie she did that was in live action. In that same interview I read this morning, Brenda Chapman herself did not seem too hot on that film. Sorry, <laughs> we gotta get <laughs> that. To was it. all I wanted to say. Well, I just feel like, and I feel like there's such a difference with the other guy, Mark Andrews, being like, "I'm working on a big project, and it's gonna be, it's gonna be a big project," and it's like, it's just a privileged thing to be able to say that. Like, even if your movie is like. You know, even if people don't really like it, like he can still be like, I got making money moves. I'm moving on up. And it's just like, it just feels like such a setback. I feel like this movie really did set women back, women directors back. And I feel like women directors now, when they go to Apple TV, it just is really discouraging. Well, yeah, because of who's in charge there. Yeah. Um, 
I wanted to say before we wrap it up, just one last tangent about the score, because I was looking at this. Um, the International Film Critics Association, which apparently gives awards like in categories for movie score, which I think is interesting. First off, obviously in 2010, it went to How to Train Your Dragon. But one thing that threw me off is because I said earlier in this podcast when I was talking about the fan fiction, I was like, and then randomly Jack Frost is there too. I actually forgot that movie came out in 2012 because it beat Brave. Um, I, I, oh, I, wow. I thought that movie was way more recent than that. But what I also wanted to point out that to me is very fascinating is in 2018, there's a person named Mark McKenzie who I've never heard of who won for some Indian animated movie I cannot find any information of online called Max and Me, the best original score for an animated movie, which means it'd be Incredibles 2, Isle of Dogs, and Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, this little, this movie I've never heard of. Max and Me is famous. It's like big, it's like the big Australian animated film. I'm Googling it and nothing's coming up, so literally... Oh, oh, it's, oh, Maxima. Max and Me is not coming up anywhere as a movie. I'm being serious. If you Google it, it comes up as a 2010, like, Netflix rom-com, it looks like. Max I'm adding and Me? Yeah, Max and Me, 2018. It's Wait not a sec, up. why are you right? What the hell? <laughs> yeah, this movie does not exist. I'm searching 2018. Okay, I found Where something. Where is okay. it? I found it as the fourth result from Muse- Movie Music UK. It's a review of the score, but I can't find anything about the movie. Okay, it's from a Mexican company. Um, but what? I can't find anything about the score of this movie. Um, although, this movie score website That's 2018. Say it's like incredible. Um, oh, I'm thinking of Mary and Max. I'm sorry. No, yeah, I know Mary and Max, but I'm just like thrown off by this guy I never heard of beating. I'm not surprised about it beating, uh, you know, Incredibles 2 because that's a sequel. But it's like Isle of Dogs, which is a good desplat score, and then Spider uh, Spider Verse is like now like I know people kind of took a while to warm up to that sport score, but I feel like that score is now like considered like iconic. But anyway, I feel like he'll probably win this year. I guess just by default. Anyway, sorry, Brave. Well. To wrap things up here at Looking for the Ocean, we like to, at the end of an episode, give a film something. A lot of film podcasts or reviewers like to give films a review score like stars or numbers or something like that. But we like to actually give the film an object, like a present, like a gift. It could be a physical object. It could be an experience. It could be anything that you would give as a, as a gift. It just has to be something that you think would be appropriate to give to this film. And Sarah, since you're returning, I want to turn it over to you first. What would, what would you give Brave? I would give Brave one liable civil suit against John Lasseter. That's a good one. Good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I will go and... I th- I think that this is one of the few times if they could get Brenda Chapman back now that she's done a live thing and now this is John not Lasseter's my idea. Gone. <laughs> now what? John, now that John Lasseter is gone. Well, so yeah, gone. and it's also like, you know, maybe it wouldn't be a Pixar thing, but just because of, you know, the issues we've talked about in the episode, this is something that maybe I would actually like to see as a live adaptation. All right. Well, first, a little story. And then I will get to my thing, is that recently I went to see Ruby Gilman Teenage Kraken for my obnoxious reason of, I've seen every DreamWorks movie in theaters, I gotta keep doing it. And I got jump scared at the beginning by the new DreamWorks logo that I had forgotten <laughs> was the thing. <laughs> um, where it's like, you know, it goes through all their IP. And the reason I bring all this up is because, you know, at the very beginning of this episode, I said this movie had DreamWorks humor. And then I apologized to it because Sarah pointed out that How to Train Your Dragon is a much better 
Scottish movie. Well, okay, it's not a better Scottish movie. It's a better movie, right? Like it's a much better movie than. Brave. Aren't they Vikings? Don't they have Scottish accents in it though? That's well, more. Like, I mean, does. they just they just they just get, well. I mean, yeah, because he's Scottish. Okay. I think they just kind of gave them accents. Well, well but, I was actually thinking when. I mean, but where is Burke? You know. Yeah. Well, I, I more mean the like. Okay, sorry. I didn't mean to be offensive, but that was offensive. But wait, haven't we argued about that, Sarah? About Burke be? I feel like we've had a conversation about Burke. We were talking about the live. We were talking about the live action one. We don't need to talk about that. Well, but, uh, like, yeah, okay, maybe it was that. When Craig Ferguson popped up in this, like his voice, I just was like, "That's Gobber." Like, I'm, I'm, I understand why he's here, but also it's like, "That's Gobber." Come on. But I bring all this up because you know I feel like I would like to apologize to DreamWorks. And I would like to give um, this movie, and particularly Mark Andrews, because I want to blame him for this. Although Mark's gonna be like, "You can't decide blame." Blah blah. blah. I'd like to give this movie um, a copy of a film that came out the year prior, so they could watch it, and is also directed by a woman alone. And that is, I would like to give Mark Andrews a copy of Kung Fu Panda Two, and Brave a copy of Kung Fu Panda Two, because the thing about Kung Fu Panda Two mm. is the action is concise. It's the best you movie can ever. I actually really should revisit. Kung- I want to revisit all the Kung Fu Panda movies because I feel like all my. I I, I, on- did, I did it recently. Great. I feel like all my opinions on them are very like outdated because I know on Letterboxd I have them all low and I'm like Kung Fu Panda is not a three star movie but I don't want to up it without rewatching it. I think it could easily be four. Yeah, I feel like it could be four or maybe four and a half. I honestly think Kung Fu Panda two could because I think Kung Fu Panda two is the best. I feel very comfortable saying that will probably stay the same rewatching them. But I th- one of my issues with this movie that I didn't really get into, but I did allude to it, is that I think the action sequences are all shoehorned in and poorly done. Uh, I don't think they're well directed at yeah. all. And I think Kung Fu Panda 2 has so much cool action in it. It is, at the time of 2011, and around that era, I think it has like animated action that's not really needed outside of the Incredibles movies until like Spider-Verse comes out. And I think a lot of that is the direction in that movie. And again, directed by a woman. So I'd like to give Brave and Mark Andrews a copy of Kung Fu Panda 2. <laughs> It's a good movie. Scott, what do you think? So, if anything that I would give it, I'd give it something purely Scottish. I would have given it a tartan, but a little fun fact is that a tartan was specifically made for Clan Dunbroch. And it is known as the Brave Tartan. <laughs> uh, except you, you can't you can't you can't use it anywhere because it's trademarked by Disney because it's Disney. But you know, it's it's there. It's got an official tartan that's registered in Scotland, so that's something nice. But if anything I would give it would be Big Banana Boots, which I'll, I'll send a little photo of Billy Connolly in his Big Banana Shoes. All right, we got to put that doing in the stand-up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just feel like... Oh, if, yeah. Because that's it. I wonder, Billy Connolly is such an icon in Scotland and the UK, but I don't know if he's known really outside of movies, like Lemony Stickets or whatever, but he had some wacky costumes, and I think that one's his most famous... I think of him as also being in the weirdly the open season movies, or at least the first one, because everyone's were direct to video. Oh he, yeah, he is in that. Yeah. God, those open season movies were something. <laughs> they definitely. Happen. I remember liking I actually, them. They probably haven't aged well. Ever told you guys? The, oh, have I ever told? Well. This is more a question for Mark. Have I told the story on this podcast about my job in open season? What? No. I've been told that the one time my um, overall CEO like stopped the field trip was when she was in the theater setting up the open season field trip, and she saw there was guns in the movie, and she's like, "I refuse to have these children watch any movie guns in," and she like stopped the screen. <laughs> and I'm, huh. just, uh, I'm like, "How'd you not know it? Like, how'd you not know there were guns in the movie? It was pretty open." <laughs> I feel like I might have dropped that anecdote in the surface up episode, but anyway. 
What a, what a great episode, everybody. Sarah and Scott, thank you so much for coming on. You guys have been fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And you guys, you want to plug yourselves if you want people to find you? And if they don't, that's totally fine. What do you think, Scott? I mean, I, I, don't, I don't have anything. <laughs> I don't do podcasts or do anything really online, so I can't really plug anything, sadly. It okay. sounds like you live a wonderful life, Scott. And I, th- I think... <laughs> yeah. uh, well, you can find me on Letterboxd. Uh, S-G-K-E-S-S-G-E-K-Y. Uh, you can find me on Instagram and threads. Uh, S-G-K-29-E-S-S-G-E-K-Y-29. I'm also... I forgot. I'm also in another podcast. <laughs> uh, with Danny called The Snub Club, where we talk about the movies that have the most Oscar noms, but no wins. I have a question. Scott, people really don't know his material. Is there like a Billy Connolly album or bit that you recommend people check out? I mean, there's, there's, there is a lot. I think with Billy Connolly, you just kind of, you just kind of search him up on YouTube. One, one of the good bits, uh, there's the one about a bagpiper at a party. There's also good ones where it's like, there's videos introducing him and talking about his legacy with Scottish comedy and UK comedy as a whole, which kind of touches on him. It's, it's really nice to see, because he currently, if you don't know, Billy's suffering from, I think it's MD. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, he often reacts to his old comedy and stuff, and you can see him like, recognise it, so it's always nice to see. But I definitely recommend just kind of YouTube, just search up Billy Connolly and watch. I would, I would say though, there is a film which is called, oh, what, what was it? It's a film with David Tennant, which is called What We Did on Our Holiday, which me and the family decided to watch together. It's, it's him, David Tennant, and um, uh, Rosamund Pike. And you're like, oh, this is going to be great. A nice little family. Um, turns out he dies in it. And um, it's it. the whole, whole thing. <laughs> I know, spoiler alert. I'm just saying. This is extremely traumatic because we, we sat down to watch this. It was extremely like this sad movie about grief and loss and acceptance. And we were just, as a family, we were sitting there bawling our eyes out. So just, it's, it's just watch out. He's in some really heartful stuff. But yeah, search up, just search up his stuff on YouTube and there's a bunch of it. Awesome. I mean, I just, I don't know, I just love watching clips of comedians doing their thing. And I was like, oh man, we have like an actual Billy Connolly fan here and I can use your knowledge. That's our show. Danny, do you have the credits open? All right, Looking for the Ocean is produced by Mark Young and Danny Vincent. The show is edited by Mark Young. Our original artwork was designed by Sarah Knopf. Thanks, Sarah. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) You can follow us on social media at Looking for the Ocean, Instagram at Looking for the Ocean Pod, and Twitter at Pixar Journey. And on our website, looking for the ocean, pixar.podbean.com. You can follow me on markyoungperformer.com, and it also has my socials, and I just added a page where you can find the newest episodes of this podcast. Uh, before I tell you where you can follow me, Mark forgot asking a very important question. Oh, yep. <laughs> I hope you all are big fans of the credits, because you also get to hear what we're doing next time. Where did it go? I had it in all caps on the document. Oh, it's it's on the other page. It got pushed to the page too. Okay, whatever. Well, Danny, what do we do next time? Um, we are going to talk about. Actually, um, Scott already alluded to it, but we are going to talk about the Dis- the short that was on the Blu-ray, The Legend of Mordu, and we are going to combine it with the short that was with Monsters U, The Blue Umbrella, which will be interesting because you know we like we really like the directors of our works, 
And I remember I was saying we don't like the Blue Umbrella, so... Well, we're just worried about the conventionality of the Blue Umbrella, but I think it'll be really interesting, because this is the guy that did Ollie Show, and the the car show. It was, like, I'm (laughs) super excited about this guy's work. (laughs) Germans are going to come after me. Oh, anyway, you can find me. Where can they find you? The Germans, the Germans can find me on step plan for all my on Blankman's and at the Snub Club. Yeah, the we'll snub see you club. next time. We talk movies there. Sarah already explained it. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>